This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. We are live. All right. Welcome to another session of In Class with Dr. Gray Carr. That's Dr. Gray Carr. I'm Karen Hunter. We're here. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us. You look amazing, Dr. Carr. How you doing? Doing wonderful being here with you, Prof, being with you, sis. And like you said, every week it's like go more and more. So we can't say morning, noon, or evening. It's it's worldwide. It's good to it see is. you. It is. And I'm like, let me just say thank you to everyone who was here. No CP time. We're here at noon on time. Stop playing yourself, that? people in the comment. Anyway, uh, I was thinking this morning, I was thinking about my daddy this morning. Um, I had a conversation this week with David Banner, and he was like, you know, contemplating his success with people. And he said, you know, for a lot of people, I'm everybody's daddy, you know, because a lot of people don't have the kinds of daddies that they can, you know, or mommies that they can depend on. And so, you know, and he said, in many ways, you're doing the same thing, you know, you and I, you know, because there's a a dependability. And I was just thinking about my dad, because he raised fish, you know, um, he used to, uh, he had a 75 gallon tank when I was a little girl. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was three years old. He raised these fish called Jack Daniels. They were warring fish. They would fight and rip each other's face up. And I would sit there for hours and watch them. And I had this little uh, toy iron. And for some reason, I, I thought I could just hit the fish. So I, I banged on the fish tank with my little iron and it cracked the hole. And I remember running and hiding in the closet in my, in my we had a giant apartment and I was hiding because I knew I was going to get a whooping or I was going to get in trouble. Yeah. And it flooded out the hole. Like we lived over the lobby. So the whole lobby flooded. When my daddy found me, <laughs> he didn't beat me because in his mind, what you know, it was not a beatable offense or a punishable offense. I had already punished myself. But I was just thinking about those fish today because, you know, when we got older, he actually took the boiler out of our house, which my mother was pissed off about, to put in a 300-gallon fish tank. <laughs> 300 and he, he raised these African cichlids, and they were mouth brooders, right? And I was thinking about mouth brooders. Um, and those are both male and female fish, mostly male fish who the, after the egg is fertilized, they would gobble the eggs up, not eat until the eggs hatched. And then they would spew forth the, the, uh, the fish. Right. And we would watch this cause he had a whole system. And I was thinking about it from two different ways. Like there's a lot of people that talk that are mouth brooders. Mm. They hatch things in their mouths. And but they don't produce much else, you know, I and I, I was just thinking about that this morning, like, you know, there's a lot of commentary as we head into this election. There's a lot of people saying things, a lot of people, you know, um, with opinions. News cycle, 24 hours, people just talking, talking into the into the, you know, just mouth brooding, just putting things out. And, you know. Every week we come here with the with the goal to provide knowledge and uh, framework, foundation, blueprints, breadcrumbs, healing, you know. And I just I just want this space to be purposeful, and I want everyone who is here to you know take this and make something happen for yourself, for your community, for for this country, for the world, and not just keep talking like we're talking a lot and not doing much. So I just. Yeah, you know, I was I was feeling that today. I wanted to share that with you. 
can can I ask you this is because it's a very powerful metaphor and we know as teachers that metaphor is if not the most powerful is one of the most powerful tools in our toolbox because metaphor allows people to understand a thing and then begin to explore a thing they weren't aware of before through the bridge of the metaphor because they get the metaphor then they have to explore the metaphor so now that you've introduced that metaphor to all of us can i where do those eggs come from so the the female will lay eggs the male will fertilize it and then he will scoop them up into his mouth and then not eat until the till the fish hatched in his mouth right and he doesn't so 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 then the purpose is to perpetuate the species right and they created the well she had those eggs when she came into existence and then he fertilized them they're recombining and then they preserve and continue life right and i think it's interesting that and with those african cichlids that is the man the male fish which is also the most colorful because we we would sit there and you know he was so into these fish man and my father was a clean freak. So for like 10 years, his fish couldn't breed because he would clean the tank like fastidiously because he was because he grew up in a house that had like roaches and rats. So he was one of those people that if there was a corner that had anything in it. He was like, oh, I got to get up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm bleaching everything. And he would vacuum the fish tank out. He didn't know he was vacuuming the eggs. So we went down south. Uh, they actually came to get me because um, I stayed at my grandmother's in Augusta. Yes. And so he was down there for like two or three weeks, came back, fish tank full of fish. And then he was like, oh, okay, I've been vacuuming up the fish. I didn't know that the eggs were because it's so little. So then once he started studying it, you know, he became, he had like a whole farm. He had three tanks, the 300 gallon tank. He had another 50 gallon tank where the babies would go. And, you know, he was, he was so into these fish, but I was just thinking about mouth brooders and, you know, that metaphor can be taken a couple of different ways, you know, um, I was just thinking about how much we talk and don't get stuff done. Well, but well, that's anyway. why I asked. Yeah. Okay. No, so, no, 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 no. I'm asked because I think you just laid down the theme for our little time together today. I really okay. think you have. I mean, I'm thinking about it in terms of, okay, so let me ask you another question. Could that male, and of course, it makes sense in, in terms of the ecosystem and then in terms of how life works that the male of the species would be the most colorful because the female has to make a decision as to who she's going to perpetuate the species with. <laughs> so you got to be attracted to it, right? And then, of course, he has the added function of being the one who serves as incubator after he has, you know, fertilized the seed. So it gives males, biologically, it gives us a purpose for existing. <laughs> Otherwise, females could just handle this on their own. So, I mean, that's important. I don't, you know, we start talking about equality of the gender, of the sexes. I'm like, see, that's the West in here messing up because y'all don't really observe nature. And you do. Sounds like what your father did initially, which thinks that this sentient flesh that we are, human beings, can intervene in these natural ecosystems and improve them when, in fact, when we get involved, it usually messes it up. So, I mean, it's all kind of metaphors. But, but that being said, let me ask you another question. Could that male or that female and male, well, first of all, without the female having the eggs, without the male fertilizing the eggs, could that male fish incubate eggs in his mouth that were not of his species? Hmm. I think he probably could. 
Because it was just a holding cell, right? The mouth but was what, just. What would what would the eggs have to be in order for them to? It would um, just have to be fertilized. But 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 they would have to be fish eggs. They would have to be of his fish. species. Yes, yes, they would have to be of the same species. But I don't think it would have to be eggs that he necessarily fertilized. Right. Now, oh my God! Now you just added another layer of metaphor. Now watch this. Let, let's let's see if we while we walking through this again. Everybody's like, "Oh Lord, they sound like they're somewhere on the corner on Saturday morning having a conversation, and we don't lost." No, no, no. This is the genius of people of African descent. This is the genius of humanity. But since we were the first on the planet, we pioneered all this. Observing nature is the first thing Africans did. That's why you see all the cultures. The Egyptian culture is nothing if not an extended riff on observing nature. You see them laying out their tombs, temples, and pyramids, and you look at the stars, you see them perfectly aligned. You see their metaphors, they're aligned with nature. That's why they don't put human heads on their manifestations of what they see as the expressions of divinity. Mm. The Europeans come along and say, oh man, look at them, they got bird head gods. Everybody slow down, see, because you all see the human as the center of the universe. We know we're just one species in the universe. Why would you put a human head when you're trying to convey a concept that transcends humanity? So when you wanna convey a concept of intelligence, don't put your head on the human figure, put the Ibis head on the human figure. Why? Because we watched that Ibis for centuries and millennia dip down into the Nile, take up water in its beak, give itself an enema, to cleanse itself. And we said, that's a smart bird. So when we came, we said, what are we going to use for the symbol of intelligence? Use the, the bird. And so <laughs> that's where Jehudi comes from, who the Greeks called Toth and who the Romans called Mercury. Then by the time it gets to Mercury, it's a dude with a hat on with some feathers on it. And you done missed the point. So, so obser observation is the first thing. So again, I'm going to ask you this question in this context, because the metaphor you've, you've, you've laid out as it relates to all this talk, the spewing forth, if the words are not words connected to an organic, procreative, eternal, connected relationship, then they then they may or may not give life. In fact, they probably won't live, give life, right? So people are talking, but what you're spewing forth are not eggs. Where did you, get, where did you get what's in your mouth? Well, Come did you on. conceive that with your community? No, I, where did you get, well, I was reading this, then I talked to somebody. Okay, so it looked like you're giving life, but it's not living because it wasn't conceived by your community. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The metaphor is compelling and it comes out of nature. Somebody said, um, I thought I was going to talk about people running their mouths and instead this is a way to explore the real role of men in society. No, yes and no. It's the role of community. Yes. And, and what I realized is that everything that I, I know or I thought I knew or that I read, I need to have discourse with somebody. Yes. Oh, yes. In order to shape it, in order to understand it, in order to 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 broaden what it is. And I think too many of us navel gaze or we keep our circles so tight around people who aren't going to challenge us, right? Right. That we never get that perspective. I'm always here to learn. When people, this is in class with Carr, cause I'm I'm a student in this, you know, I, I, I have a platform, we'll, you know, we'll go back and forth, but I don't know where you're gonna go, but I know that you're one of the smartest people I know. Mm. So I'm having these thoughts, I wanna we, share them. Right, and we and we, and we build on each other. I mean, that's it, cause I, I mean, I'm, I'm still very much humbled. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of like stunned, even when you 
when I see that name, given the fact that when I think Carr, I think Haywood and Catherine Carr, I think my parents. <laughs> so when you see my name, but but very much in this conversation, for you to have not only opened this platform to me and to us, all of us are in this class. And when I watch you during the week, when you drop deposit these things on YouTube, I listen to the momentum. I mean, we were talking before you hit, you know, broadcast and uh, about uh, Sister Rodriguez. When I hear Ada uh, Rodriguez talking, Ada Rodriguez talking, you know, this question of the we from another cultural perspective that connects to, in fact, some historians would argue comes out of the African is very interesting. And then listening to Ed and uh, and Hakeem, uh, Hassan rather, Hassan Kwame talking, Jeffries uh, and, and Ed Baptist talking about what, what, what you mentioned last week, this project they have going. I mean, all kind of sparks fed off. And I said, okay, that's where we can start. And then you mentioned Hippolyta and Nzinga as possible titles. And I said, oh, that's another. So of course, I started scrambling around in here looking for stuff. And the next thing you know, this is what happens when, you know, we have ancestors who have left us some of this procreative seed. It fertilized. So I guess the, using the metaphor, it it took to maturity in my mouth. And now we have what we're creating is now coming out into this space. That's to be distinguished from things that may come out of our mouths that don't have parents. Uh, there are, don't have long lines of parents. There's no genetic material. There's no, there's no organic link. And I think that might be the single thing that frustrates us so much because we all have the capacity to speak. But even the Egyptians, it's interesting in Egyptian language, the uh, the metanetia, what people call the hieroglyphs, there is a, their concept medu, which as we talked about before, means speech. Speech is literal, but speech is also metaphorical. Speech is the thing that is created. Speech is the thing that propagates existence, that repeats the cycle of life. In fact, one of the earliest creation metaphors they use uh, we can say stories, we can say narratives, but I like, I like the concept of metaphor because it frees us of the attempt to find a thing in a search for historical accuracy. You know, accuracy is the bailiwick, is the shibboleth, is the battle cry, is the password of the West, even as it does not always pursue accuracy, but rather a view that conforms to what it wants to do. But then when we come along and say, is that accurate? Is that accurate? Is that accurate? You know, let's, let's, let's go with metaphor. So one of the earliest metaphors for creation in the ancient Egyptian texts is the story of how Ptah, you know, spits out existence. Even the, even, even the sound of that as we gloss it now, Ptah, like he's spitting out existence. Think about these fish. You got us, man, these fish. This, the, the, the idea then, and then one of the metaphors, the creator, uh, the creative spirit swallows, you know, masturbates. And this isn't a Jeffrey Tubin again, because <laughs> now the world is you know, the world has reduced this to some form. And this again is the West, the the kind of um, how should I put it, the the reduction of the biological function to this unclean thing so to speak, but that's not in, in defense of Jeffrey Tubin, and it's not about Jeffrey Tubin. but the metaphor I'm about to give is one that the Egyptians use, and I want to distinguish that from any of this foolish conversation that's been going on the last few days about Zoom and, and, and all this, but the, the creative spirit masturbates 
swallows the seed, puts the seed in his mouth. And, and at that moment, the masturbation signifies the male contribution. The swallowing of the seed enables the creator to become pregnant, at which point the creator then gives birth to reality. So there is no separation of gender in most of the African tradition. In fact, most of the African traditions wouldn't put a gender on the creative spirit. Oludumare and in, in Yoruba, but you only get to the to the assignment of male and female in later later iterations of creation. But in that Egyptian lies the seeds of this notion that what is to be created going forward must come as a result of union, collaboration, some form of consent. Or as August Wilson, uh, as his character uh, tells uh, his son, as Troy tells his son in, uh, in Fences, you know, I gave you the best part of me. He's telling his son this when he wants his son to be a man and stand up straight. And the son asks him, you know, do you, do you like me? He said, do I like you? That ain't got nothing to do with it. I, I I gave you the best part. I gave you life. He said, me and your mama worked that out between us. <laughs> in other words, you're here <laughs> because me and your mama worked that out between us in the great lyrical poems, poetry of the great Frederick Cattell, the great August Wilson from Pittsburgh Hill District. Me and your mama worked that out between us. So the thing that will give life begins as a working out between the partners. It's a partnership, regardless of what it was immediately before or immediately after. In that split second, there's a recombination. And for the ancient Egyptians, it's a recombining of things that were together to begin with. So, so you can't separate it out. But those elements I mentioned, that you mentioned to me, uh, little, uh, you know, day or two ago, iterating out of what you've posted over the ARPA last week, and me looking at that, Really, I want to ask you, uh, I guess, another question, a um, couple of questions. Maybe the second one. Of, well, yeah, let's go with the, the second one first. What was it about the naming of our sister uh, coming out of Tougaloo College, the great Ingenue Ellis, Mississippian, who fight like hell against that Mississippi State flag? Shout out, Ingenue, because you was on that thing for years. But what was it that led you to think about why they would name her and there have been some articles written as to why they some explanation name her uh hippolyta in that in, in uh in lovecraft as you know i i um i studied mythology in high school and college and you know talking to you again everything i almost feel like hmm, i want my money back but I'm grateful <laughs> because foundationally when you start pulling back these layers so you know you learned about all of the greek and the and the Roman mythological figures, and I'm like, but she's African. Why is she named after after this Greek person? You know, so I wanted, you know, I, and I wonder why they chose that. You know, but it had to be a reason because it had to be an African person before Hippolyta, right? Or there was an African Hippolyta. So I was like, let's let's talk about that for a minute because I think she was the fiercest. That that scene when she lands in in that battle space. Which she get her ass whooped, you know, until yes. she doesn't get her ass whooped, and then they, then they're fighting everybody. Everybody. These women fighting everybody, and they're handling their business until they weren't. But I, I was just thinking about that, you know, because that thing comes up over and over again. I think we are in a constant battle with ourselves. Ooh, yes, right. 
So, so I'm just like, we, we got to learn. We got to learn all of these lessons. We don't have a whole lot of time, you know, um, but we got to learn these lessons. So these lessons get passed on and, gets, and get passed on, passed on and passed on. I'm reading Ta-Nehisi's book, uh, The Water, Water Dancer. Water. And, yes. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in this space where I'm, I'm realizing how much was lost, you oh. know, how much was lost that, that, that we, you and I, just in this space on Saturday, just trying to reclaim bits and pieces of it. And you know a lot more. And I'm like, just trying to extract as much as I can from the from your brilliance and then put it out because those are the building blocks that were lost that we have to get back because this fight is not against white folk. It's not against this, you know, it's not political. It's, it's us right. getting back to who we were so that we can be who we're gonna be. And I just, I'm, I'm committed to that, that mission. So all the other stuff is just noise. And I'm just tr trying to figure out how to drown it out and how to get people mm -hmm. to stop like being petty. You know, like there's places for pettiness, but not no now. Pressure. We invented pettiness too. Shade? Oh no, no shade. <laughs> Word play, <laughs> in fact. <laughs> we could give you shade with a look. In fact, I'm convinced that Thursday night that was Senator Harris helping to coach uh, old Joe Biden and how to throw shade with a look. <laughs> that Zen look he took when when he really when 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 Trump started going off, that uh, that side eye he gave him a couple of occasions, the heavy side. I'm saying, do you have uh, Kamala Harris as your debate partner in the prep, and is she coaching you? Oh, right here, you ain't got to say nothing, Joe. Just be like this. In other words, <laughs> I'm I'm convinced that was shade that came from the. Uh, uh, junior senator from California. But so yeah, we know about that. But this, okay, so okay, that answers the hip of life. And come back to that in a second. When you were talking to um to Jeffries and Baptist, when you were talking to uh Hassan and, and Ed, and those of you who hadn't seen it, please I encourage you to go back and look at those clips on on, on Karen's uh website. I mean to me they're all mini in classes really but um there was a moment very kind of early on in the conversation where uh, Hassan, uh, and by the way, thank you for asking about what the role of people who are attempting to correct the record, what their role is at these historically white institutions. And Hassan came close to, to, to answering that question a little differently when he said, you know, oh wait, now there, there, there's a group of black scholars that have been doing this all along, but now, okay, so yeah, let's go back before the conjunction, because see, it's that group of black scholars, the foundation on which everybody stands, that have been completely erased from the narrative. In my mind, that is the fundamental problem because I went to Ohio State. They have two degrees from Ohio State. And I'm well aware of the racist nature of Ohio State. In fact, I was, you know, I was in grad school there. I was the uh, graduate assistant at the Frank Hale Black Culture Center. We created a reading room. John Clark was still alive. We brought Dr. Clark out to Columbus and dedicated the Arturo Schomburg uh, Reading and Research Center there in the Black Culture Center. My man, Larry Williamson, is still the director out there. At Ohio. So I'm well aware of the wars we fought at Ohio State. I mean, you know, when Rodney King was uh, beat, we went over to the administration building, burnt the American flag, came with a list of demands and got many of them. So so a lot of the young people who are at Ohio State now uh, stand on the foundation of the ones who came even before us in the 1960s and 70s. Mwanza Ross, Otto's Cast, the Black Student Union at Ohio State. So I'm well aware of that. But the simple fact of the matter is that scholars at Wilberforce in Ohio, scholars at Central State University in Ohio, scholars who were not connected to any university in Ohio that were public school teachers, that were community folks, scholars in Columbus, Ohio, like uh, 
uh, Mariba Kelsey and Nomo X and Lil Latiba and all them at the African Center for Study and Worship out on East Livingston and East Columbus. Uh, you know, these are the people who were doing that work. So now that it comes into view of these white institutions and they can extend a little bit of research grant and maybe a couple of graduate assistants to work, that is important work, but never, ever, ever, not only forget, well, ne number one, never forget that this is not the first time work like this has been undertaken and done. And number two, well, that's, that's number two. Number one, the communities that we are trying to uh, lift into conversations must be recognized for the fact that they lifted themselves into conversations. And it was not that this work wasn't being done. It was that the society beyond those communities did not want to recognize that work. And that to me is really more important than this other type of work because what you're doing is saying, we're no longer gonna allow these people to be invisible to you. Now you do with it what you want. But we're, but, but we're not going to act like we're the first ones coming to this conversation. But that's not really where I wanted to go with that. That was a footnote, a long footnote to the question. <laughs> Early into conversation with Hassan and Eddie, uh, Hassan said something. He said, you know, this country doesn't want history. The, it, it, this country wants nostalgia. You remember that? Yes. Yeah. What do you think? What, what, when he said that, what made what, what oh, you think? I'm like, exactly. 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 You know, everything and you and you talk about it every week, which is why, you know, I'm I'm somber because of the morning of everything that I believed in now being thrown into question. But I'm excited because now I get to go back and say, OK, was that true? How do I feel about that? What do I think about this? And, yeah, we are even now as we we have these debates for what these debates. Why are we having these debates? Why? Why, why, why is this process the way it is? You know, and it's it's fake. You know, on some level, you know, when when people say my vote doesn't count and all of this, you know, you vote because there is power in it. But this system, and I said this before, founded on hypocrisy. Yes, on the backs of blacks, blood of of Native Americans, blood of Africans in this soil. Everything that you are, Tanahasi wrote about it. You, none of them people did anything. They couldn't even tie their own britches. Nope. But they had a facade and, and the black people had to go underground and feed them through these pulleys and, and, and be the invisible mice that make everything work. But nothing worked on a plantation without a black person making it happen. And to this day, this country doesn't work without us. So yeah, it's nostalgia. What do we do with that? What do we do with that knowledge that you just laid out beautifully? So, so this is part of this experience that we're having right now, which is for me, walking into the knowledge that there's not a single corpuscle in this country that works and operates without us. So right. that, that means not power over someone, but understanding that we don't have to ask anybody for anything. No question. We don't have to beg for equality and rights and this and that. We literally have the ability to build everything that we need to build right here. Right and here, we've done, and we've done it before, and that's that's what that's where that thing really gripped me when you were y'all having that conversation. Man, I got seized up with that, and I had to watch it a couple of times because because by the way, again, it's very it's small footnote. Watching the debate the other night, it was very interesting. And again, those people who think you know voting doesn't count, okay. Well, actually, right now, they probably hopefully y'all not really watching because it doesn't 
really matter because you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. So, but it's interesting to hear Biden acknowledge the his need of these other voters. And I'm not saying this in a kind of romanticizing, you know, I'm not, listen, I'm not capable for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a tool. He's a battering ram. I don't give a damn about no Joseph R. Biden. In fact, if you read the book Yesterday's Man, this is for uh, this is for all the people who think they have the correct arguments against Joe Biden because they glossed a couple of newspaper articles about the crime bill and they kind of heard the name Anita Hill. Get the book Yesterday's Man if you want to indict Joe Biden on your way to not vote, if you want to talk about who this guy was. But what's interesting is, and who he, who he is in some ways, but um, what's interesting about Thursday, I'm listening to Joe Biden, and he didn't, and interestingly enough, Trump didn't, or whatever drug they gave him, or whatever, you know, to kind of, you know, kind of calm him. He didn't bring up the Green New Deal. But Joe Biden sounded like Al Gore and Ocasio-Cortez when he was talking about the environment. I'm thinking to myself, is this is a concession to the people you need to come out and vote. Now, you may or may not believe it, but when you said the environment is the existential crisis and then told the oil industry, F y'all, which blew my mind, and then yeah. Trump said, did you hear that? Trump was shocked. <laughs> he was like, like yeah. then, Look, look, then, then Joe came out of his uh, working class Joe bag with, my mom used to pick me up from school and turn windshield wipers and oil slicks. I said, I see you. I see you out there scaring the out these poor white people. In other words, I'm listening to Biden go in that direction. Now, I mean, the, the metaphor of left and right is, as far as I'm concerned, useless in a racial capitalist system. People talk about the left and the right. There is no, mm -mm, no. You need to talk about the white nationalist party, which floats between the two political parties, depending on time and space over the last 150 years. But that hasn't been said. Listening to Biden's closing two minutes where he said systemic racism. Interesting. This is in I'm listening to Joe Biden and it's kind of underscoring what you just said in terms of the indispensability of not only people of African descent in this country, but the, the, the recognition not only of that indispensability, but of the of the fact that this project will not continue in any form if this structural inequality is not addressed. To hear Biden say things that he didn't say in the debate, that he hadn't said up until now, that not only gesture toward, I mean, look, and on the way there, throughout the demographic hero, in fact, I was rereading uh, my man Ricky Jones' uh, book, What's Wrong with Obama Mania? Right, Black America, Black Leadership, and the Death of the Political Imagination by Ricky L. Jones. I mean, yeah, I did this guy Superman. Talk about myths. We're gonna talk about myths in a minute. I mean, Joe Biden, when 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 Trump tried to time to uh to 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 Obama, and of course Trump let it slip too with his little Freudian slip. The reason I ran against you, the reason I ran against you, the reason I ran, Obama. There it is. <laughs> it's the only reason you ran because he roasted you talk about shade at the Washington Correspondence. I mean, everybody know when you made the decision, you know, between Obama and Seth Myers, embarrassing you sitting there looking like what you look like. But that's neither here nor there. Joe Biden said, it was interesting to me when he said, um, you know, I'm going to add the public option to Obamacare and make it Biden care. Oh, did you just throw <laughs> your boy under the bus? <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> In other words, because remember, it was the prescription drug benefit and it was the public option 
that the Obama administration gave up first in the concession to the lobbyists. To, to pass the Affordable Care Act, arguing that they couldn't pass it otherwise. You had the numbers. Ted Kennedy was damn near on his deathbed. You should have rammed through the public option to begin with. But now Joe Biden stands on a stage almost eight years later and says, I'm going to add the public option and call it Biden Care. I'm saying, wow, did this dude just come close to embracing Medicare for all? Then he went on to explain that the people over a certain age would get it and the income target. And I said, uh-oh, what is Joe Biden? This, and those of you, it don't matter. I know y'all didn't watch the uh, debate if you don't think voting matters. And if you did, I know you were looking for quotes you could soundbite and put into your next, you know, column saying why votes don't matter. But if you listened with ears and listened in the way the ancient Egyptians call it, the, the, the word, one of the words in, in metonetric for listen is sejim. Sejim is literally when you draw the glyphs, sejim is a human ear. And then you see a picture of, uh, of, a, of an owl. Now, we know, for example, Temple University, the mascot of Temple University is the owls, the Temple Owls. When Russell Conwell started Temple University, the owl is a night bird. Temple started as a night school for working class people. In other words, to get an education. The owl is seen, of course, Minerva in the Greek, you know, owl is seen as the bird of wisdom. So if you're listening for the ancient Egyptians, it doesn't mean just to receive some sounds or to receive some sights, because listening can mean reading as well. It means to hear. In fact, when they say, uh, they have a phrase, they say when, uh, when hearing enters the listener, hearing becomes listening. So if you listened Thursday night, you heard not even a subtle shift in terms of policy, but it is directly related as I come up out of the footnote to what you just raised, Karen, which is the indispensability of these people who really were the engine that allowed you to engage in this criminal enterprise, indispensable to whatever happens next, and the fact that absent them, the existential crises of global warming is go are going to collapse the species. So you're not getting out of this. Now, you know, people still gonna vote against their class interests and some people ain't gonna vote at all, but let's be very clear. To say that it doesn't matter is means that you may have heard, I'm sorry, You yeah, you, you may have received the sound, but you're not really listening, you, you know. So, so I said, all right. let's let's stay in that footnote for a second yeah, because you know I'm I'm again seeing a lot of a lot of conversation around this, you know, vote tangibles and this and that, and and they're they're slogans that feel good, they sound good, it sounds, you know, we're withholding this for power's sake, and and I just wish I wish, you know, first of all, um, you, you have to know that w you and I in particular are not being paid by anybody to say these things? Nope. You and I are probably going to be okay no matter who's president. No question. Oh, in fact, I should say this, Karen, before you go on. I, I don't know about you, because I never asked you this, but I assume what is true for you that I know is true for me. We're approached. Would you be a surrogate? Would you help? No. no. See, I'm not approached. So oh, let me, no. let me be but clear. They already know for you. Yeah, <laughs> Let me just be they, no one's approached me to be anybody's surrogate. Uh, because and I and I think you know it's pretty if you listen to me every day on the radio three hours a day, you pretty much know Come on. for 20 years that I'm not somebody that can be approached. Right. So it's, it's been 20 years. So I've been doing this. Right. So I just I just want people to like this this conversation is about like examining everything, you know, like Q's plan, great, great plan. Is the timing right, you know. Puffy nails and great, great. But what 
what does it do for us? And, what and does it do for us? Yes, reparations. Reparations are great. We deserve them. They're old. But what's the process? And yes. so part of this experiment that has turned into this experience now is, is for us to suss it out and have a conversation. When I came here talking about fish, I was like, I had thoughts swirling. I just wanted to work them out live with you we're doing. And, and, and we're doing it. And, and I think, you know, this is the blueprint for how we all should be doing it in our own homes, with our families, with our friends and seek out the wisdom of the elders. And like, let's put things back in order. You know, we we have uh, kids leading, you know, elders put out the pasture. Folks aren't, you know, going and, and, and extracting all of the goodness that's out there because they think they know because they think they're the first. And and I just want I just want us to put things in order because we have the opportunity to do it. And this is the time. I don't think we're going to have another time like this. I've never seen a time like this. We're not. If we don't do it now, it ain't ever happening. We're not. And it's, you know, so. No, that's right. That's right. In fact, you know, I was thinking about it during the week. I said I was looking for stuff and I realized there are so many other plans we didn't even get a chance to talk about last week. I mean, I stumbled across this one while I was looking for something else. Remember this one, of course, that's Smiley and them, the covenant. I have, yeah, I have the covenant. Yes. You mentioned it, right? Good. You talking yeah. about the I mean, this is 2006 talking about we don't have health insurance. We're currently, currently lost our right to vote as a result of felony conviction. How many people live in poverty? I mean, and this is a book that came as a result of a lot of collaboration between a number of different people. And in fact, uh, Marion Wright Edelman from the Children's Defense Fund, who was the first black woman barred to practice law in the state of Mississippi, came out of that Southern freedom struggle, wrote the foreword to this book. And, and what you're really underscoring, again, that fish metaphor is perfect. You can't conceive life if you haven't recombined the elements that we're living to begin with, that egg and that sperm. that further, And that comes from something that is a genealogy that goes back to what the ancient Egyptians would call the septepi, the first occasion that it happened. And in their metaphor, when God masturbated, swallowed the seed, became pregnant and gave birth. In other words, it all began as a unity, but it is an unbroken chain. And I think that's what leads us in that conversation you were having with Hassan and Ed. When Hassan said, this country wants nostalgia. And then later on in the conversation, Ed said to borrow, uh, actually, Kwame said he was quoting somebody else. And then um, uh, Ed said to to quote, you know, to use Professor uh, Jeffrey's uh, metaphor. And I was like, I laughed. So I knew then what shirt I was going to wear. This Gil Scott Heron. My man. <laughs> the great man. Gil Scott Heron. Raised in West Tennessee till his grandmother passed when he went back to Chicago. Gil Scott Heron, of course, whose father, uh, Gil, was named the Black, was nicknamed the Black Arrow, one of the first Africans to become a soccer star in England. But mother, of course, from the U.S. Then he went to North Carolina. I'm sorry, went to New York, was raised, uh, continued to be raised. I mean, the great Gil Scott Heron. But Gil Scott Heron had a, a, a poem song, uh, a creation called uh, B Movie where he's talking about Ronald Reagan or Ronald the Reagan as he ended up talking about him in rerun on another album. But, uh, you know, when he, uh, he said, uh, he was talking about the election between uh, Reagan and Carter uh, in 1980. And he said, uh, the first thing I want to say is mandate my ass. Do, 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 do. And then you hear the bass come in. He's saying, cause he's saying, you telling me, and he says, this small percentage of the registered voters, not, not everybody, just a small percentage allows this man, Reagan, to claim a mandate after he beat Jimmy Carter? He said, but what this country wants is nostalgia. 
So just to, you know, Professor Jeffries may not have heard that song, but I, I suspect he did. He's a Morehouse man. I know he heard. But now it wasn't who you said quote said this country wants to start. It was Gil Scott Heron in B movie. And then he goes on for like eight minutes where he talks about how this system was created. How he talks about the fact that the uh, the candidates include uh, created by all the millionaires possible, and then he lays down all the people. Then he comes back around to Reagan, and he says. This country wants nostalgia. It wants to go back into the past, even if it's only as far as last week. Who they really looking for is John Wayne. He said, but uh, since John Wayne was no longer available, they went for Ronald the Ray Gun. He called him, he called him, uh, the man is uh, Bogart tough. The man is Marine tough. The man is Cagney tough. And he says, and Bonzo insubstantial. Meaning what? He goes back to bedtime for Bonzo. It's a movie actor playing the role of president, which is why Donald Trump stole from Ronald Reagan, who announced his candidacy in 1980 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where they found the bodies of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney from Mississippi Freedom Summer, announced his candidacy there. That's why Trump took his slogan from Reagan, who had the slogan, Make America Great Again, as we know. But I'm saying I have to say, Facade is not wrong. Ed is not wrong. Because Gil Scott Heron is not wrong. But there's something more to it than just wanting nostalgia. It led me to a deeper question. What are the uses of history? What are the uses of memory? Because we can never construct the thing as it was. That is impossible. That is impossible. People say, how you doing? It is what it is. Right. It is what it is. In the moment that we're living. It is what it is. And if it is what it is, it isn't what it could be. It just is what it is. We've accepted the reality. No, we can shape the future. If we think we can shape the future, what makes us think we don't shape the past every time we evoke it? And evoking the past, mm. what we're really looking for is a usable past. We're looking for lessons. So when Ed Baptist was saying, for example, what we're really trying to do is understand, among other things, how to understand history. And we got to take the good and the bad. What my friend, what your friend, Ed Baptist is doing what he's doing in his book, The Half Has Never Been Told. He's show, he's, look, I'm going to show you everything I can dig up out of this past so that we can use it to build a better future. What Hassan Jeffries is doing, and I got his latest book over here somewhere on teaching the civil rights movement. Very important. He's right about K-12. That's why I spent the last 30 years in K-12 doing that work. Is not just myself, so many other people. And before that, Blacks in these institutions, we're going to talk about in a second, because I'm going to talk about this through the lens of Nzinga and then some of these usable past stuff. Because when you said Hippolyta, maybe we put in, you mentioned Nzinga too. So we could have named her Nzinga. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You sent me all over the place looking for stuff. And now we get to tie it together as we do on Saturday, right? So as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking about this question of how do we fashion usable paths? You know, how do we deal with this question? What is the value of history and memory? So I was watching a conversation that just took place a couple of days ago between two very good brothers and elders, friends of mine. I'm, I'm very, and, I, I, and people, I, I, I'm not name dropping when I say that. I'm saying that very deliberately because uh, for two reasons. Number, number two, I'm very happy to be living on the planet and be able to search out and sit with and listen to and learn from and bounce ideas off people who, as you said, like you, Professor Hunter, like you, Sister Karen, like you, my dear friend, because we want 
humanity to win. We want our people to stop being denigrated. And we, we were, we're open. There's a certain generosity of spirit that comes from people like that. And these are two people like that. Uh, Gerald Horn, mm. Professor Horn. And he was actually interviewing Ishmael Reed. Oof. I love Ishmael Reed. Ishmael Reed is the type of Negro who is going to cut everything on your body <laughs> in love and never, the face, his face don't never change. <laughs> the, la the last time I saw Ishmael Reed, in fact, he came to D.C. He was promoting his book on Muhammad Ali, which is excellent. The Trials of Muhammad Ali. I don't know where I did with my cut. Oh, wait, there, there he is over there. The Complete Muhammad Ali is too far away to get. But look up that book, The Complete Muhammad Ali, y'all. I know, you know, Karen knows it. And I got a chance to sit with him. They said, we want you to interview Ishmael Reed. I said, I can't interview Ishmael Reed. I'll sit and talk with him. Y'all can record it. So, so we talked for like two hours about his book and about his craft. Ishmael Reed don't take no prisoners. Now, you can disagree with him and should. Agree with him and should. But what you're not going to do is not be honest. Because if you don't think you're being honest, he's just going to say it. And he is going to always try to be as honest as possible in his conversation. So I'm watching these two talk. They're talking about his new book that just came out. Uh, he, he did a play, of course, uh, The Haunting of Lynn, Lynn Manuel Miranda. He talks about Hamilton, because you know, man, he's death on Hamilton, as, all, as we all should be. And he and Gerald frame it perfectly in the first 60 seconds. Hamilton is a business. They have made billions. Maybe Lin-Manuel made a couple millions, but Disney then made billions <laughs> to understand. And Hamilton is a capitalist dream because it ties to a usable past. You basically got black and brown face reinforcing white nationalism and white people will pay for that. Dick Cheney loves it. Dick Cheney went, he got mad because people was chanting at him at the thing, but he was there. Why? Pence, Smiling Mike, all of them, you know, they love it. Why? Because it reinforces ideas. So now they're deconstructing in this conversation Hamilton using uh, Ishmael Reed's play, which has now been published as a book, just came out, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda, where he's basically saying, I'm not beating up Lin-Manuel Miranda. You know why? Because Lin-Manuel learned the same history I learned. That's what Ishmael Reed said. You right. learned, Gerald, the same that uh, that Hassan and Ed learned, the same that you learned, Karen, the same that I learned. He said, and, and then and then it, Reed being, I think, overly generous, frankly. But, I understand why. He said, because Ishmael Reed been writing a long time. Any of y'all don't know the work of Ishmael Reed? Mumbo Jumbo, the terrible oh, yes. fighting and fighting. That dude out of Buffalo, New York, that is a cat to read. You know what I'm saying? coming out of that black arts movement. I, I, you know, I, the, some of the museums have opened here in DC. So yesterday I snuck out for a couple of hours down to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. I just like, first of all, I just like going in and look in the bookstore, see if they got anything I don't have, which they didn't, that's good, check. Then I just walk around and seen them as if it's a million times. And you know, there's a picture in the black power section of Ishmael Reed with Jane Cortez, Ramar Bearden, Leon Demar. You know, it's very interesting. And then, you know, Reed is standing there with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with his arm draped over uh, Jane Cortez, who got this afro out to here. I'm saying, these are my people right here. The black arts movement people. So you're saying, Chaz, Nikki Giovanni. I mean, these are my... So anyway, Ishmael Reed comes out of that thrust. Tony Cave, Ambar, all of them, right? These are his friends. Tony Morrison, who he talks about. In fact, Ishmael Reed said in an interview, uh, Karen, that he helped Tony Morrison with the black book. I'm just like, wow, this, see, this is why we had these conversations on Saturday. Because <laughs> he was in that mix with the black. We say he was meeting, you know, he met with her. They sat and talked. So anyway, Reed says, you know, I don't blame Lin-Manuel. 
he's working through his issue. Oh, there it is. There it is right there. Y'all see? Hey, look, Karen. Oh, yeah, I should tell you this, too, before I go on. This, this is a little footage as you hold up the black book. I was in a, a, a bookstore, one of the bookstores I go to here in D.C. I'm masked up, gloved up. I'm in there. You know, I'm Dave, I can't catch no coronavirus. So I'm just saying. And so I hear, I overhear a brother come in there and ask for the half has never been told and the black book. At that point, I knew. He had been watching your YouTube. That's right. <laughs> I said, watching you. We do this work. You know what I'm saying? I said, I loved it. I mean, this is random. not random. Everything in the Bible. <laughs> I was like, look at this. So, so that's when the, so, so, so Reed and, and Horn having this conversation. And Reed says, you know, I, 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 yeah. I don't blame him. But now we have to deconstruct this. This guy bought and sold black people. He can't be redeemed. He said, everybody writing about it has been ignored or marginalized by the white press, the white publishers. And by the way, that covenant with Black America, we saw with Tavis Smiley uh, put his name on as editor and everybody worked on, was published Third World Press. Mm. Third World Press, Haki Booty, Black Press. In other words, so Cube, Diddy, we get it. Listen, it's not, a, it's not a thing. Look, we're in solidarity on the need for this. But without knowing the genealogy, without having that usable past, without being... Uh, the creation of, without having been in somebody's mouth, Cube, in somebody's mouth, uh, Diddy, in other words, that that birth view, or without being aware of it, you you don't have roots, you don't have a genealogy, you don't have a connection, and so now what you're spitting out may be useful, but since it's not connected to anything, it's not giving birth to anything. It's just talk. <laughs> and and saying that and saying that is not um, bashing or smashing or. You know, and, and this is, you know, where we have to mature a lot around this notion of having this conversation doesn't negate the need for it, as you just said, but we have to examine it. Like, is this the right time? Do you have the right background? Do you have the right people that, you know, all of that has to be and, and asking the question, we should be able to do that. We have and, to. And not, and not be put in this situation where it is there's conflict because there's no conflict. We got we got the same goals, most of us. And if we don't, that'll be revealed too. But we have to be mature enough. And those who are defending it, I'm seeing, you know, those who are fiercely defending it and name calling and all of that is because of the insecurity that they have in themselves that they see in those brothers and those sisters that are out there doing those things. And they don't want to have to step up and actually do that work on themselves. So I'm going to defend that thing because I can relate to that thing being incomplete. That's right. That's I, exactly right. I, and, and anything else means I have to work. Well, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to do, you're going to have to work. This thing, you don't get out of this without working. Sorry. Right. No, that's critical. You don't get out of this without working. And there's a way to work. And it, 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 as you said, as we began, being critical is part of our relationship. Our relationships are not uncomplicated, and there's never been a perfect human society. So kind, we're going to talk about that in a minute. We talk about it in Zynga. Human societies have always had conflict, and African societies are no uh, exception. And in fact, African societies being the first societies on the planet really gave birth to both conflict and conflict resolution. It's how you resolve a conflict. So let's say people are going to stay in their corner and fight over this because they won't listen. Because if you're listening, you understand this is not anti. We're all in this together. But the critique, uh, and here's another one. Okay, those who are critics. Let's, and I'm beginning to see a little bit of it in social media as people realize they're run out here and have an indefensible position. They're looking for a place to retreat. 
take a page from the Zulu, who formed themselves, who were not a national group, not an ethnic group, as they came really into existence in the 19th century, early 19th century, as they were fighting the British. What you see is smaller group begins to uh, subdue these other groups through conflict, through wars. I mean, Shaka out there, you know, um, Sesquio and them, these early 1820s, 1830s, they out there conquering people. This is not pretty. But one of the things they would do in battle often is when it was clear they were going to win, you leave your opponent a retreat. Just like you were saying a couple of weeks ago. In turn, you got to lead on something. You know what I'm saying? So guess what? Those who are saying, oh, we ought to be, okay, here's your, here's your retreat. Here's your point where you can back up now that, you know, okay, it's, it's very simple. It's very simple. Diddy and Cuba right. They're right about what we want. The challenge is how do we gain the momentum to get it? And if you listen to the debate the other night, you can, I don't think it's historically accurate, but for free, say it's because of what they did that Biden said there's going to be a public option if he wins. <laughs> so young grandmother can get health care because when they did the covenant for black America in 2006, they had the statistic nearly 20% of African-Americans do not have health insurance. And for those of you saying, oh, I'm getting so great because the premium is so high. Guess what? That old white man who y'all say is the same as uh, Donald Trump said on the stage that there's going to be a public option. And as you just heard Professor Hunter said, you don't get out with any work. If he gets sworn in and doesn't have a public option, all of us got to be down there to make sure it gets through the legislature. So in other words, but you can claim credit for that. Put that on Diddy and, 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 and Cube. That's fine. We all together. It ain't historically accurate, but it gives you a, a way of retreating. Now, that happens because we we like nine, ten days before the elect, nine days before the election. Early voting in Maryland starts uh, on Monday. So that's my election day. So I'm saying, you know, for those of you who are not, who are trying to figure out a way to still hold on, as you just heard Professor Hunter said, whatever deep insecurity you have, because we all have them, but for some reason can't put that in reverse, let's help us figure out how to give you some more historical tools to work with to allow yourselves a bit of a retreat because we are on the same team. Every election, our rights, if you want to call them rights in this field of violence, we call the United States are always on the ballot. But <laughs> that, that haven't been said, you know. But but this conversation in between Ishmael Reed and Gerald Horn, Horn then says in response to Reed critiquing Miranda as a victim of the same curriculum we've always been victims to, the ones that Kwame and Ed and you and me and everybody are trying to fix for our children, really, and for us, but especially for our children. You know, Gerald says, you know, I look at this in waves. I look at this initial wave of this kind of mythological history they have. Then I look at our fight against it. And in this, this current wave, you see an attempt to reconsider the whole project, like the 1619 project. He says that's an that's an attempt to to reconsider the whole project. And Gerald, if, if nothing else, is always very generous. Ishmael Reed is Ishmael Reed. So Ishmael Reed says, you know, Gerald, I'm glad you, you know. I wish you had been the spokesperson for that 1619 project, because the person who was given the credit for you know given the kind of voice to be the platform for this thing was out here on the West Coast a while back and said that uh, Santa Ana was a villain and then Ishmael says now I thought I said to myself she must not know any history Santa Santa Anna was the abolitionist them people in the Alamo were the slaveholders <laughs> he said but so you know and then he then they went on to discuss but in that moment I thought about it and I said you know what 
And then, oh, then they went on to talk about the politics of memory and history. That's why this usable past keeps coming up. That's why I think they perhaps named Hippolyta, uh, they named uh, Ingenue Hippolyta as opposed to something like Nzinga because there's a risk involved when mm. you restructure the whole thing too quickly. Mm. The, ri the risk is that you will be exiled from the structure that you, you may end up like Ishmael Reed. Nobody want to be like Ishmael Reed. Nobody want to be the people who don't have a, who think they don't have a place to go because they don't trust the people to provide. They don't trust the black institutions. And so this disruption, the, the, the search now for some people, and I'm not going to say that people who are working in some of these white institutions who are trying to say they're there to advance because, you know, we've both been in them white institutions. But I'm going I'm to pause there because he's my friends. But I'm going to say this. The calculus is, can I disrupt without exile? Can I engage in a kind of a polite disruption? Can I engage in the type of pushing the envelope that won't get my check taken or won't get the prestige from the very system I know needs to be disrupted? So in some ways, it becomes a dance with those who are saying, you know, Q, Diddy, you know, we with them. We don't need to vote. We need our own. Okay, see, Diddy got his own. He's going to be all right. Q got his own. He's going to be all right. Curtis Jackson is going to be fine. But guess what? All them people watching power? See, Ghost would be okay. Maybe Ghost would vote for Trump. But I'm not sure. I mean, you know, Tariq goes public, that goes private school. Of course, he killed his pop and this sort of thing. But uh, all them other characters? Uh, Keisha, no, I, I think Keisha's going to take an L. In other words, so let's just deconstruct this using the metaphor that everybody knows. Yeah, Ghost, he got a club. He gone legit. Maybe he votes for Trump to keep his economic interest. But all them people that he sold dope to, I think they're going to take an L. So when you say you support Q, when you say you support Diddy, as you said, the metaphor is I support them because we need independent black politics. We need independent base. We all agree. So there is a critique of those who won't take the risk. However, however, we don't remember when we had independent institutions, even though they were independent in large measure because they labored under American apartheid, we haven't learned the lessons from when we had them. And that's why when uh, Reed and Horn were talking and they talked about this idea then of not getting exiled, trying to be polite disruptors, mm. then Gerald asked Ishmael, says, well, you know, this book right here, uh, the Haunting of Lin Manuel Miranda, which is a critique of Hamilton, critique of the politics of capitalism, uh, excoriation of all those white slave masters. And he talked about Andrew Jackson and all that. You know, he says, you know, why was it important to do this? He said, well, he said, I've been publishing other writers, other non-white writers, Asian writers, Native American writers, all this kind of stuff for years, for decades. He got his own, Liz Marie got his own independent publishing label, taught himself Hindi, learned Yoruba. He publishes books in Canada, publishes books in China, has all these markets. He says, the American publishers don't want to touch much of what the writers that I'm publishing, that we're publishing together, the Before Columbus Foundation that he had on the West Coast, has on the West Coast, almost all non-white writers with some so-called radical whites. He said, they don't want to publish that in the establishment. Now, because of that, I think, in measure and of course demographics, you begin to see the ability for a 1619 project to exist. But those things are coming as concessions 
They're not coming because people had a change of heart. They're coming because they can see that we have always had these independent spaces. And, and that leads me to really the, uh, the thing that I hope, and then hopefully we can have a uh, continuing in our conversation and invite some people in with question and answer and conversation. Like you said, talking about mythos, talking about usable pasts and histories. You know, Hippolyta in Lovecraft Country, you know, this this powerful black woman. I read a couple of uh, reviews of uh, and then watched, of course, you all's recaps, which are which are gold <laughs> watching those recaps. But listening to and then what and then reading these these these, these reviews and in and, and one review uh, I read talked about the fact, well, Hippolyta is kind of a minor figure in Greek mythology. Uh, we know that she's most famous because she gave uh, her girdle to, her to Hercules, who then kills her at subsequently. Uh, her her mother was the founder of the Amazons, and he, I think that Greek mythology is fascinating because it does reveal, as far as I'm concerned, the deep pathology of the Greeks, the deep misogyny, the deep you know this kind of thing. And you thinking, well, they could have named her in Zynga, but you can't name her in Zynga because the same impulse that would have folks in white institutions of any kind try to engage in disruption without exile. Also, when you're in a space like that, you want to be black as hell, but you got to have viewership or your show get canceled. Because just like Hamilton, the musical, Hamilton on Disney, they making money. It's profit driving this. That's why it's called racial capitalism. You know, the capitalism part, the profit part. So, I mean, Watchmen last year, Lovecraft Candy, that's more blackness than you could reasonably expect. <laughs> on home box office, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? On Time Warner, HBO, it is more blackness than you can reasonably expect. So you can get away with an insecure, perhaps now, just like there was Shonda Land on, on the American Broadcasting Corporation. Yes, you can you get away with that, but maybe now, blackish, blackish, again, disruption without exile. But that Lovecraft now, and, and then of course before that, and by the way, I know, you know we've both been following now, they found, I guess, maybe as many as a dozen graves in Tulsa, they've announced finding as many as a dozen now. And that was beautiful when you went through the medical doctor's history. And of course, I go back to our conversation this summer about Tulsa in 1921. I mean, it was a, such a moving piece. And when you when you went through that brother's history, Jackson, I guess it was. AC. Oh, say again? AC Jackson. AC yeah. Jackson. Oh my God. And you, you name checked Mahari and talked about what he could made me think about TRM Howard, who was a surgeon in Mississippi, Mount Bayou. The, the, the Daughters of Tabor, I got their history around here somewhere. The Daughters of Tabor, T.R.M. Howard was the A.C. Jackson of Mount Bayou. And in Mount Bayou, Mississippi, that's where Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, spent the night on nights that she was down there for the trial because they ran that. That was their black city. And that goes back through Isaiah Dickerson to uh, uh, no, no, Moses Dixon. I'm thinking Isaiah Dickerson, who's with Cali House. That was the rep reparations organization. Uh, uh, Mary Frances Berry's book, My Face is Black is True. But going back through Moses Dixon, that goes back to Davis Bend, Mississippi, where Jefferson Davis's brother Benjamin had a plantation with all these Africans on it. And after the war, he sold out the brother who he said he's going to sell the land to. And they went and, and his son went and got started Mount Bayou, Mississippi. But TRM Howard was a surgeon who they had a hot black hospital in Mount Bayou. They had the Daughters of Tabor who set it up. These are women. And then the men, the Knights of Tabor, who set this hospital up. 
and they were so powerful that when these white boys was down there threatening Mamie Till and them after they had killed her 14-year-old son, just like the U.S. Army executed her husband, uh, this is another conversation, John Wyman's book, Writing to Save a Life, talks about that. He's buried in France. But every night, they took her back to Mount Bayou, where they could protect her with those long guns. But I'm saying I have to say that there are T.R.M. Howards and A.C. Jacksons spilled out across the South, and, and T.R.M. Howard died of old age. But A.C. Jackson was murdered, as you say, shot in the face. And so, such a moving, not only tribute, but reach for a usable past that you did in talking about him. Again, y'all check that video out on, on Karen's YouTube channel. But as, as we think about, you know, uh, Watchmen dealing with Tulsa, as we think about uh, Lovecraft Country, putting Tulsa in there, putting Chicago in there, the funeral of Emmett Till, you know, friends with the little girl. I mean, all this stuff, you're thinking this is black as hell, but you gotta have some whiteness, what uh, my Jegna old head, my man, Holly Garima always calls a point of entry. In other words, white people not looking at black people as human like they are. So they gotta know where the white people are. So, you know, Hippolyta throws them a bone. I hope it's not a case where black people are trying to prove that they clever by using a name, because the singer would have been much better as you say, the warrior queen, but which we're going to talk about now, but Hippolyta to me is a name that's one of the ways you throw these people a bridge so that they can talk about how genius this work is while still finding themselves in it. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. you think about that. They don't seem to care about us finding ourselves in things. So I'm like, Never. if we have a platform and, you know, listen, they've been blueprints before, you know, my man Melvin Van Peoples, the whole... Ooh. Gordon Parks, you know, we, we when we double down on our thing, we don't need them. So throwing them a bone, I was almost like insulted after I was reading. I was like, Hippolyta, it's really? Insult. Yeah. So you know, but you know, I I can't complain about about it because it is the blackest thing I've seen since Underground, which How is another that? Misha Green, another Misha Green production since Watchmen, you know, and and Regina King and all of that that she brought to that, you know. But I was thinking about using this space to always, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in Nigeria, because we talked about that last week, and then always give some African foundational history, just dropping some people in, because again, we're, we're building, for me, foundationally, all of the things that were lost, we're putting some bricks, some cornerstones in so that we can fill in the blanks along the way during these Saturday lessons. So. Agreed. Who was hip? Who was uh, Nzinga? Nzinga let's do that. And in fact, this is good, Karen, because again, and those of you who are watching, I'm listening to this sister through the week, thinking about things. Then the two of us will touch base, talk about, oh, what about this this week? What about this this week? Then we talk. Then I start rooting around. So what you're seeing today is what you see every week. We we're, This is the product of us talking. And, and these larger overarching themes, what is the function and use of history? What is the value? How do you create these seeds, these breadcrumbs? How do you drop these breadcrumbs? How do we inspire? Because one of the roles of a good teacher is to help students teach themselves. And that's what people are doing now. Because you're going to read, you're going to think, you're going to and you're going to take it in whatever direction. And everybody watching, there are people who are from Tulsa. There are people who know Mount Bayou, Mississippi. There are people who in the, in, in the chat, in the conversation, are going to be contributing because we're all doing this together. That is the function of historians. So in talking about Nzinga, Nzinga gives us another lesson. And, and I want to come back before we leave to this question of usable past, because I really want to zero in just maybe maybe five or 10 minutes on this question of how we are perceived in this society and how we should perceive ourselves. There are two different things. And, 
And that's why Gerald Horn always is very careful to say the African presence during captivity in North America goes back to the 16th century, to the early 1500s. So he's very generous. He displaces the 1619 project without engaging in a full-on assault on it because he's not in assault like none of us should be. It is an attempt at disruption, but it's a polite disruption of sorts, even as it's characterized as others. But Nzinga is a fascinating figure. If Had they named Hippolyta Nzinga, had they named that Hippolyta, had they named Ajinu Ellis Nzinga, uh, first of all, most of the white people wouldn't have known who that is, and many of the black people. There's another reason, right? And they don't care, right? Uh, Nzinga's a popular name. It's like Yah Santiwa. I know a lot of Nzingas. In fact, the, the best Nzinga, I say best, the most influential Nzinga I've ever known lies buried in St. Paul, Minnesota, her people out of Mississippi, uh, the formerly Claudine Parker, Nzinga Radabisha Heru, who was the president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations for almost two decades. Uh, uh, Queen Nzinga, as we call her, brilliant organizer, lived much of her life in LA. She's born in Minnesota because her daddy and mama was like, we getting the hell out of America. Well, we ain't gonna leave America, but how, what's the farthest north we can go without leaving? That ended up being St. Paul, Minnesota. Those of you who know St. Paul, know Rondo, her father, A.B. Parker, who's buried in the same cemetery as her uh, and mother are there. Uh, A.B. Parker was a red cap in the train station at in St. Paul, Minnesota. They lived in the black community called Rondo. You know who else was a red cap? The grandfather of the current mayor of St. Paul, young Melvin Carter out of Florida A&M University. Melvin Carter's daddy was a, uh, granddaddy was a red cap along with A.B. Parker. I'm sure they knew each other. But the point is that Nzinga then moved to LA. She worked for IBM for years, a brilliant tactician organizer, which is why she took the name Nzinga. Radabisha, is uh is Kiswahili she who corrects things, makes things correct. This is the uh so you know when I when I listen to you and I when I watch you when we interact, you had that Nzinga energy. She who makes things correct. <laughs> Nzinga. So these are queen names that are taken, right? We can talk about the function of monarchy, all that's important. But Nzinga is a fascinating figure. In fact, uh there there's one, well, the latest book on her is by this sister right here, Linda Haywood. Linda Haywood's good sister. She was at Howard for a number of years. She's now at uh, Boston University. She and her husband, John Thornton, do a lot of work on Central Africa. This is the book in, in Jenga of Angola, or Jenga, as you might say, Africa's Warrior Queen. There she is. Now, this is a thorough book in the sense that it deals with Nzinga, um, who uh, was born into a royal family. Her father had been the king. And her father was, in fact, if you want to go through the, the genealogy, and what I'll do is, because people pause this often, so for those of you who can't get the book of me, I'm just going to show you the chronology quickly and then go through it very quickly so y'all can pause and see. This is the chronology of uh, Jenga or Nzinga. This would have been too heavy for, uh, let me see, there's the rest. Take you up and you all can see it. You can pause it for yourselves. But the important thing, um, Ndongo was the, what we might call uh, monarchy. I don't want to call it kingdom because, again, gendering. And she becomes, the, let's say, queen, but the ruler. You know, again, how do we degender language? Think about Oyuwanki, Uwumi, some of the Yoruba scholars who've talked about this. But in 1515, that's right around the same time, about maybe a decade later, when you get the first Africans, the Spanish kidnapped, take over to North America. In other words, about 100 years before the 1619 project starts. Um, 
the Portuguese start coming down into uh, Africa, West Central Africa. First as traders, uh, 1560, you see a, a mission arrive, so-called mission. Mission is going to become important because they wrapping this around white Christianity, right? Come forward, um, her father uh, is Mbande uh, um, Angola. She is born in 1582. So this is what? 40 years before, almost, well, not quite 40 years before these Africans show up with the British, stealing them off of these Spanish Portuguese schooners and bringing them to what become Jamestown. Well, not Jamestown. What's the place of, not Port Royal. What's the name of the place? It'll come to me in a minute. Port Comfort, Virginia. But at any rate, in Z so in Zynga's life, her active life as queen, is really around the same time as we talk about this quote unquote 1619 project. So there's the first thing we should do using Nzinga. Move away from these narratives that have us as footnotes in white history and begin connecting to narratives that have us part of a global African community. It doesn't mean you exclude those other narratives. It means you reposition them in the stories you're trying to tell, in the metaphors you're trying to use, in the lessons you're trying to learn. In other words, how do we create a usable past? What are the uses of history? The uses of American history are to continue the American experiment. And that hasn't worked well for us up until now. Attempting to integrate into the American experiment politely, disruption without exile, doesn't work either because all that does is reinforce those same institutions that ultimately will try to figure out how to maintain the hierarchy. Keep giving you their awards, keep giving you, and then you get a little bit blacker and they give you a little bit more, but they still retain all the money. So then, man, well, we'll give you five million. Why? Disney done made more billions than you can count. Now, we need another black face, brown face show, which gets us toward a better America. Now, that ain't what you're trying to do. You're trying to keep this enterprise going in the hierarchy. And that's what you should do. But it's on us if we don't start saying no. We need some more hauntings of Lin-Manuel Miranda's. We need more projects, because guess what? The more of those we build, which is Cube's point, which is Diddy's point, although, let's be honest, I love the way uh, my sister out there in Oklahoma said it, the poet who wrote The Age of Phyllis, who, who talked about it, uh, Fanon Je uh, Jeffers. She said, you know, I, was, I started to be surprised at what some of these hip-hop artists are saying uh, who are now here with the political analysis. And then I remembered their lyrics. And I realized I shouldn't be surprised. So let's be clear, <laughs> you know, the reinvention, you, you, everybody gets to reinvent themselves, whether it's Ice Cube or uh, Joe Biden or Diddy or 50 Cent. But what you can't do is get rid of your record before. So anyway, Nzinga uh, is born into a royal family. Her father, who is the ruler, has several wives. And that's a whole nother conversation, right? Because these are these, this is another context, right? But there's some question as to who her mother is. Is she a captive, a war captive that she's born by, which some people say is a slave? Yeah, but slavery don't mean the same thing. That label means something different in different places. For imagine among, among these people, for example, most of the time, if you're a quote unquote slave, you're a captive of war and your condition is not permanent. You can rise through the society that you have been captured into and eventually acquire power yourself. It's a very complicated, there's, there's no one definition of slavery. It's very important. But at any rate, that's going to become important because uh, Angola Mbande 
who is her brother, becomes the king after Mbande and Gola dies. But then her brother dies, she becomes the ruler. She becomes the queen. Now she, and this is 1624. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Five years after the so-called 1619 arrival in North America, which becomes the axis through which black people in America view themselves, you got an African who is fighting against the Portuguese who defeat her in Kandanga in 1626. She flees. The Portuguese put a puppet ruler in in Ndongo where she was. So what does she do? She then moves and declares a conflict and creates a whole nother space. She has, and that's when she becomes the queen of what they call Matamba. Now, if you're looking at a map of Africa, in fact, let me see if I can find uh, one of Linda's maps here. Because again, we're going to spend too much. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Y'all can see. This is what we're talking about. So you see Africa there, up there. Mm -hmm. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about SARS. But you see the, the blown up cover here. This is really the north. You're talking about now Zaire or modern day Congo. And you're really talking about northern Angola, the northern, the, the, the current country of Angola. That's where Nzinga is operating. I'm, I'm not going to get into great detail on this because we're making a point, but the point that we're going to make is very important with this. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a book, A Fistful of Shells. This is one of the emissaries that is sent to Portugal by Nzinga during Nzinga's time to negotiate with the Portuguese. That's the guy on the cover. So we're talking about the 17th century. Nzinga is sent before she becomes queen by her father to negotiate with the Portuguese. And so they are very uh, impressed with her. In fact, the only reason Linda Haywood can write this book is because she's in the, arch of, uh, the archives in Portugal, in Lisbon, in Brazil, in London, looking at the archives of Europeans writing about her. Because there's a very different story that emerges when you look at how the people who are from Angola talk about her. That's very important. Again, what is the uses of history and usable past? You cannot reconstruct living Black memory from white archives exclusively. You can do some brilliant stuff with it. I mean, Sadia Hartman does some incredible stuff. There's so many people doing some incredible stuff. But at some point, you've got to talk to the descendants of the people who actually are the subjects of these white archives. And so that's what we're doing in moments like this. We're always being mindful of that. How you create a usable past. So anyway, make a long story short. She battles back and forth over the course of her life between the Portuguese and the Dutch and other Africans who get caught up in the enslavement process to maintain some system of autonomy for herself. At one point, she's in the Kwanzaa River on some islands. She got that. Then when she creates this Matanza place over here, the Matamba place, she is engaged in conflict with and then absorbs into this new rulership a group of people that are, that are known at that time as the Colombo people. Colombo almost means group or the people. That's how they call themselves. It's almost like in Southern Africa when people say the uh, Bantu, Bantu like people. That's why Bantu Stephen Biko, Stephen Bantu Biko, the people. Well, the gloss of that in uh, in the among the uh, Kikongo is the well, not really Kikongo, almost. It's really like Mbundu language is Kilombo. That's going to be important in a second. Kilombo is like the group. So now this is our space. And then Zinga gets this reputation. She's playing these Europeans off against each other. She allies with the Dutch against the Portuguese who help her beat back the Portuguese at a point. Then the Portuguese overwhelm the Dutch, then overwhelm Nzinga. The last maybe seven, eight years of her life, she, oh, by the way, they kidnap her sisters. They kidnap her sister Fungi, who they call Gracia. They kidnap her sister Kambu, who they call Barbara. They always give 
a European name to the Africans. That's very, see, because the Portuguese are trying to bring them into their history. The Africans are fighting to stay out. They kill her first sister. And then when they return her sister to her, her sister Kambu, who they call Barbara in many of the accounts, Nzinga has converted to Catholicism and she, she becomes a Catholic. They say that's in part, that's a tactic. They're negotiating back and forth. We, we talked about Cleopatra last week, but we didn't get into Cleopatra's politics. She was very politically astute, but that, that's, that's neither here nor there because the interesting thing about it is my friend, uh, my friend Linda Haywood refers to Nzinga as, uh, well, the blurb on the book, I don't think she wrote this, revealing how this Cleopatra of Central Africa skillfully navigated yeah, Cleopatra has some skillful negotiating skill, but there you go again, reinforcing this minor queen at the end of Egyptian history who was Greek, really Macedonian. But in Zynga, even the priests who lived in her empire at the end of her life never believed that she really converted. This is politics. It's like Constantine and Christianity. It's like right. Constantine. Okay. Yeah, because you know Constantine, right. Coming to the Council of Nicaea in bad Greek, as John Henry Clark used to say, yeah, I see where the way the power is going. So, yes, I am a Christian. He ain't no Christian. Yeah, it's about power. But Nzinga's a fascinating figure. Now, Quilombo, that word where she establishes that second empire, that empire crosses the ocean. Because remember, the Portuguese during this whole time are taking Africans out of Central Africa into the Western Hemisphere. Oh, by the way, we're going to get about talking about SARS in a second around Ouida, those ports that are now in what we would call Nigeria and coming back down toward what is now Congo and then Angola. All those wars that the Europeans have started, which began with trade and then intensified into exacerbating conflicts between Africans and then led to the destabilization of Africa over those centuries of enslavement. They reached down as far south as where Nzinga is because a lot of that conflict is be, between African groups is being exacerbated by these groups raiding each other for people because the Portuguese is like, if y'all don't go, if y'all don't get somebody, you go. So she's fighting that off, even as, as Linda writes, you know, she's got people in her territory who they have captured and made quote unquote slaves. But she's also got people who are technically slaves. If you, that word really doesn't mean they're workers, they're captives in her territory who were taken from the people who were going to give them to the Portuguese, which is why she develops the reputation of, if you can get to Nzinga, you're free. Meaning what? You're not with them. That's how different the enslavement concept was in the Africa, at least in this part, which is also mirrors in many other parts, than it was for Europe. You don't want to go with them, because what they're talking about is different than what we're doing. And if you get to Nzinga's territory, you're not going to go with them. And that is, believe me, much better. There's a two-volume piece that the University of Wisconsin put out couple of years, a few years ago called In Praise of Black Women. This is volume two with Sojourner Truth on the cover. The first one deals with many of these women who were major figures in antiquity, pre-enslavement period. So, you know, you see Hatshepsut, you see a number of them. Volume two, In Praise of Black Women, begins with a sister who they call in this, uh, in this uh, Aquatine, Aquatune rather, born a princess in Congo, Aquatune. Aquatune, an enslaved Congo princess, she comes out, she's taken out in 1665. In 1665, Princess Aquatune participated in the famous Battle of Mbwila, after which the head of the king of the Mani Congo, another group in that area, was forever displayed in the Church of St. Paul in Luanda. This is what these Europeans do. Savages. I'm going to leave that to uh, 
to my brother in Googie Watiango, the elder, in something torn and new, chapter one, where he says they like cutting off heads and putting them in their museums. They like doing savage stuff. You know, you want to talk about savages? Don't look at Africa. Don't look at Asia. Go right to Europe. But at any rate, yeah, we can talk about, we, got, we, got, we must do one on, of course, uh, the so-called Venus hot and tight. We got to talk about how the fat they had her whole body on display, her skeleton and her private parts. Here's a picture of her, right? But the reason I bring it up is because while Nzinga is fighting the Portuguese, keeping them out, they're taking Africans off their coast and taking them to Brazil. She ends up, Aquatoon ends up in Brazil at a place that we've mentioned before. The Maroon communities of Brazil are known by the same word as the people that Nzinga conquers and gets in partnership with Quilombo. Quilombo is the places they build in Brazil. And the, the, the Portuguese report, when they get this sister, who they take to Brazil, she's about 30 years old. They like, we got her in captivity like everybody else. But these Africans who are enslaved keep coming to us and saying, look, can we do what she says? What are you talking about? She's a slave like you. No, she's the queen. So we understand we, we got to fight y'all and all this kind of thing and the whip and all this, but, but we're going to do what she says on the plantation. So they keep trying to humiliate her. Then they get her impregnant. They impregnate, they get her impregnant by one of the, these cats. They done turned their minds around and made crazy out of their minds. So they got them, their job is to impregnate everybody. So they impregnate her. She becomes pregnant in the sixth month of the pregnancy. She takes something sharp and kills the child and escapes and gets to the quilombo where she becomes the queen again. Now, all this is real stuff. I'm saying, so we got plenty of names you can name. Hippolyta giving up her girdle of Hercules. That's an insult. We got real black women who actually lived, not mythology that you can name, but we understand perhaps you don't want to engage with disruption without exile or not. But let me end this story very quickly for those, because again, I think I'm always mindful now since we had that early conversation in summer, somebody asked about children's books and things like that. Another graphic novel. The, one of the words they use for these Colombos, even though that's the word too from Africa, is Janga. This is Angola Janga, Kingdom of Runaway Slaves. This is a book that Marcelo uh, Dissalet did uh, last year. Eisner cartoon, Eisner Award winning cartoonist Marcelo Dissalet boldly re recreates a long overlooked history of black oppression. This is a graphic novel that takes you through the history of where those so-called Angolans ended up from Nzinga's territory and all the territory we now call Angola and part of Congo. They got taken to Brazil. So this is where you see the sister that opens up the first chapter of In Praise of Black Women, Aquatum. So those are two names, Aquatum and Zinga. And I want to raise something else very quickly. And then, like I said, then we, we, we talk about SARS. I'm looking at the clock. I know we've been going for a while. The reason we're doing these things, look, this isn't an academic dialogue in the sense that we're not getting into the fine points. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I got all these books that, uh, that in fact, here's another one. If you want to read the husband and wife team, there's Linda Haywood with her husband, John Thornton. They're at Boston University now. You want to read the context of Nzinga's world? Central Africans, Atlantic Creoles, and the Foundations of the Americas. This is a very good book about that. Cambridge University Press uh, that came out, Linda Haywood and uh, and um, John Thornton. John Thornton does a book as well. I don't know if I pulled that book. No, I didn't pull it. That's too bad. Uh, Thornton has a book called Warfare in Atlantic Africa, where he talks about how these Africans who were fighting each other in Africa 
So the, no, they, I'm not going. You're not going. We fight. When they get put on the boats and they end up in Brazil, they end up sharing with each other the battle tactics they used against each other, and then they end up you. Here it is. Look at that. <laughs> Warfare in Atlantic Africa. John K. Thornton. That's the husband. He's talking about how these cats were fighting each other in Africa. Then they get on the boats and be like, how did y'all beat us? And by the time these Negroes get to where they're going, they join forces and start fighting the Europeans. And he, he talks about the battle tactics they use. This is a fascinating book. I mean, when I tell you chapters like War in the Rivers, Senegambia and Lyon, War in the Forest, the Gold Coast, Horses, Boats and Industry, the Gap of Benin, he gonna walk you through how they put their beefs aside. Okay, Ice Cube, okay, Diddy, okay. We No, we got a common enemy. Can we put our beefs aside and use these tactics against the common enemy? So usable pasts, this isn't an academic conversation we're having right now. So we're not debating over sources, whether or not you can trust these written sources in Portugal over what the people say in Angola. How do you balance? That's an academic conversation. We're not talking, but we're talking more like teachers. We're talking more like popularizers. We're talking about people who are just saying, we're suggesting the thing is there. And then the goal of a good teacher is to help students teach themselves. Now you can go out and look at this. Now you can have debates, but we got somewhere to stand. And that usable past, when Gil Scott Heron says, you know, these people in America, this country wants nostalgia. What he's saying is they want a usable past and it don't have you in it. They want John Wayne against the Indians. John Wayne is dead. Okay, give me Ronald Reagan then. Give me Donald Trump then. I want a usable past. So when this fool gets up and vomits out our country and our country, when he says our country, that's his usable past. Our country doesn't include you. So you can't work your way into our country, Herman Cain. You can't work your way into our country. That brother was swag surfing out there in Georgia, Jones, whatever your name is. Uh, young Daniel Cameron, you can't work our way in your way into our country because our country has you as a slave. And so if that's what you want, fine. Now, fine. And I thought about this a lot because you had me up and hopefully, well, let me pause there because there's a lot of ways I could go with this, but I want to, I want to do this very quickly. Um, this week in my education in black America class, we were talking about integration and we talked about the little rock nine, uh, Daisy Bates and little rock nine. And it sent me, back into some books I hadn't read in a long time. And then when you, when I'm watching you and, and, and Hassan and Ed and the question of usable past, it made me think about the fact that our narratives are almost exclusively tied to the white settler project in America. And I asked my students a question this, this week. They couldn't really answer. And I didn't expect them to be able to answer. I said, well, the first question I asked, I asked them, they had an answer to it was a yes, no answer. Did the Little Rock Nine, those nine students who integrated Little Rock's Central High School in 1957, were they students before that fall day in September 1957 when they came to go to school in Little Rock High School? And of course, the answer is yes. 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 Then I asked, were they all high school freshmen? Nobody knew. I said, do you assume they were all freshmen? That's a common sense answer. The answer is no. I don't assume. So if they were high school students before they went to integrate Central High School, where did they go to high school before that? 
What you think they said, Professor Hunter? Uh, segregated school. Exactly. That's exactly what they said, which is correct. Then I asked them, what was the quality of the school they went to before since they were picked for being high academic performers? Mm, mm. And their answer was, it must have been high. And I said, thankfully, you got the right professor because I am shoving in place in a library and I spent all my money on books. So let's talk about it. So the first book <laughs> I picked it out, again, what's the usable past? Because all of our narratives are about hell on Lovecraft. The sister wants to be white. So she takes the potion from the point of entry to white man as a white woman, which is already mind bending, and then becomes a white woman, right? And then she sees, yeah, but it's all about race. Race should not be the center of our dialogue. We are humans in the world. We are what this brother right here, his book just came out. We are sentient flesh. This is Ronald Jr.'s mm. book. In fact, I love it. He takes that from a quote from a brother. Talk about ancestors, Karen. This book just came. I just got this book yesterday. I've been waiting on this book for six months. So he's got a quote from Thomas Wyndham, who was part of the WPA narratives we were talking about, by the way, looking for these other books. I came across that actual document that that one unwritten histories of slavery are, are, are from. I had forgotten. I do have a copy of the Fisk University original transcripts. They were around here. Felix, Egypt settled. But anyway, um, Thomas Wyndham says, I think we should have our liberty because us ain't hogs or horses. Us is human flesh. What Judy does is he take we are sentient flesh. So he says we should learn from the other flesh in the world, like those fish your daddy had, that you learned from, that you set this whole metaphor up at the beginning of this. But unlike those fish, unlike the pigs and horses and cows, we are self-aware. We are sentient flesh. And what this elder says in the Great Depression, when he's out there sharecropping like hell, engaged in another iteration of Jim Crow enslavement, the thing that Cube and Diddy and you and me and Charlemagne and everybody else want to get out of, when, when he says, we, I want our rights because we ain't cows. We is flesh. In other words, we are thinking flesh. And so the question becomes, was that sentient flesh that went into Central High School? The answer is yes. Where'd they come from? Daisy Bates, the long shadow of Little Rock. Here's her memoir, forward by Eleanor Roosevelt. So it must be an approved uh, point of entry. It must be, you know, disruption without exile. It takes Sister Bates, a legend, another hero, up into page 123. 123 to talk about one of the schools these children went to. The first sister who they gave hell, Minnie Jean Brown, Minnie Jean Brown gets in there, and what do they do? They start messing with her about behavior. Because, you know, how they suspend black children, it has its roots in integration. They start writing her up for stuff. Then it comes to Jeff Thomas, Jefferson Thomas. Jefferson Thomas, young 15-year-old Jefferson Thomas. Watch this. Page 123 says what? Next to Minnie Jean, Jefferson was the one singled out for the segregationist wrath. Jefferson, son of Mr. and Ms. Ellis Thomas, was the youngest of seven children. He knew when he entered Central that he, as well as the other Negro students, would have to give up. Oh, my God. Would have to give up all the extracurricular activities he had enjoyed at his previous school. That's the first clue. Oh, previous school. Go on. No longer would he be able to hear the cheers of his fellow students as he streaked across the finish line during a track meet. At Dunbar, at Dunbar Junior High School, he was an outstanding track star, a school hero, and won several awards for athletic prowess at Dunbar. 
He was also president of the student council. He was now well aware that at Central, he simply could not belong. That was made crystal clear to the nine Negro pupils by the school authorities. At the time, children were being selected from approximately 80 applicants. Now, as Thurgood Marshall said, who argued those cases, as Wiley Branton said, who argued those cases, as Oliver Hill said in the book, The Lost Education of Horace Tate by Vanessa Suttle Walker, good sister, they, the lawyers for the NAACP said it was the school teachers at the segregated school that helped us pick the right students. Those students came out and said, this boy right here was the man at Dunbar Junior High School. And he had to go to Central High School. How does he enter our consciousness in terms of the usable American past? He enters as one of them kids getting spit on. The dude had a whole life. And you got to go get Daisy Bates to give you a hint it was there. And then watch this. I told the kids, oh, we're not done. Because you know what I got? I got the history of those black school teachers for every state in the South where they had an association. This is the history of the Arkansas Teacher State Association. Thomas Pat, let's go read what's going on here. Oh, my God. Let's tie it together to what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. The Little Rock Crisis. Oh, my goodness. Watch this. Oh, my goodness. He says that the... Hold up. Oh, my goodness. I got to go... Ah, yes. The Little Rock Nine. On Labor Day, September 2nd, 1957, nine students were chosen to enter Central High School. Names them. Uh, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Thelma Morehead, Melba Patillo. That's an important name for later. Gloria Ray, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Carlotta Wallace. Governor Faubus, Faubus in all the documentaries, he says, no, Central is segregated. And then he says, and Horace Mann is educated, uh, is segregated as well. Faubus announced that Central High School was off limits to black people. And he added that Horace Mann High School, where former Arkansas Teachers Association, the Black Teachers Association, President L.M. Kristoff was principal, was off limits to whites. So what he said is, no, we're going to keep segregation. Central is segregated, and so is Horace Mann High School. But I didn't name Horace Mann High School. The high school I named was Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So are there two black high schools? <gasps> Yes. No. You would think right. Well, right. let me let me clean up Kristoff first because it's gonna tie back. We talk about Toussaint, Toussaint Louverture, Jean Jacques Dessalines, Henri Kristoff. Not not uncomplicated figures, but kind of like the founding trio of Haiti, right? Leroy Kristoff was the principal at Horace Mann High School, whose students ended up being the Little Rock Nine. He was the president of the Arkansas Teachers Association the previous year. So I go back in the book to find out about Leroy M. Kristoff, because Kristoff was an interesting name. That's the name of one of the Haitian Revolution guys. What does go do get a name Kristoff as a last name? Watch this. At the annual convention in November 1953 in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Leroy M. Kristoff, principal of Dunbar High School in Little Rock, was elected president of the ATA. President Kristoff was born in New Orleans, but moved with his family to Arkansas when he attended elementary school in Newport Forest City, got his high school diploma from Gibbs High School. Oh my God, Karen. Then I went back, I ain't got time to do it today. I went back to Gibbs High School. Mifflin Gibbs was the first judge in our black judge in Arkansas. Mifflin Gibbs was a huge businessman. Mifflin Gibbs is a legendary figure in black history. Mifflin Gibbs, black people in, in Little Rock named the first high school they had Gibbs. Then they replaced Gibbs with Dunbar. And Kristoff is the principal of Dunbar. He had a 
bachelor's degree. I'm sorry, he had his high school degree from Gibbs High School in, in, in Little Rock. His bachelor's degree from Talladega College, Talladega, Alabama. His master's degree from the University of Chicago. And his doctorate in education from New York University. He taught science. And this goes back to what happened after Jim Crow. Again, the story ain't about, the story's about these, these nine little children. The story ain't about the teachers. These teachers, some of them were superstars. To be a high school principal in a segregated school in the South, many of those schools, you had to have a damn doctorate. You understand? This is the level of principal. Now, what about the white school? I don't know that hayseed. Maybe he went to school. Maybe he didn't go to school. He taught science at Dunbar <laughs> High School in the early 1930s and served as principal of Stevens and Bush Elementary Schools in Little Rock in the early 1940s. After service in the U.S. Navy during World War II, President Christoph became the principal of Dunbar, where he served until 1955. In that year, 1955, he became the first principal of the newly opened Horace Mann High School. Mm. They closed Dunbar, open Horace Mann. And so finally, I told the young people, oh, oh, no, you think it's over? In the words of Sean Combs, thought I told you that we don't stop. This is the history of the Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School of Little Rock, Arkansas, by my dear friend, uh, Faustine Jones-Wilson, who was on the faculty of Howard for a number of years, with a little quote from the alma mater, take from our lips a song, Dunbar to thee. Look at that beautiful Rose of Walk mm. building. Now, this, now, we don't see that. All we see is the Little Rock Nine. Now, watch this. If Dunbar, she writes this on page 158 with a picture of these young people. I'm going to read you what she says here, and y'all can pause it to read for yourselves. Finally, she says, if Dunbar had remained a high school, the students pictured in this homeroom class in grades 7 through 11 in 1955 would have been Dunbar graduates. The 11th grade students in Dunbar in May 1955 became the Horace Mann graduating class of 1956. The Dunbar 10th grade students then became the 1957 Horace Mann graduating class. In other words, they closed Dunbar, opened up Horace Mann, and it was students from Horace Mann, formerly Dunbar, who integrated Little Rock. But in terms of a usable past, Black people in this country know virtually nothing about the Black institutions that were so excellent that their products killed Jim Crow. So whether it be, when you don't have a contract with Black America, a plan for Black America, do not act like you are the first Negro in this country to come up with the idea that we should be excellent. In fact, go back and consult your ancestors who were excellent. We don't have to make it up. But when you don't have that knowledge, what you've got in your mouth trying to give birth to is some eggs that were never fertilized. And so, of course, they sound just like spewing out because they fall into the bottom of the fish tank and they ain't fertilizing nothing. They'll never be born. They're not really eggs. You got all what's in your mouth from somebody else's historical memory. So what you're vomiting up is useless. It might, in fact, have been fertilized by them. So maybe what you're giving birth to is your own demise. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, it's very because, I mean, I'm telling you, and by the time I got through with this conversation with them, I mean, this is two days a week we get in this conversation. Because we're walking them through text. They've got books they're reading. We're discussing. We're going back and forth. What's being revived in these young people is our historical memory. This is the usable past. Our people don't want nostalgia. Our people want their memory restored. And in restoring our memory, we're not going through all of the arguments. Well, did Nzinga do this? Did she do that? There's some questions about Nzinga's uh, sexual predilections. Was she bisexual? Was she pansexual? Hey, I'm here for all of it. With the academics, we had a conversation. But there's a reason why Claudine Parker named herself Nzinga Radabisha Heru. She was looking at her Mississippi parents who said, we will determine ourselves. And if I got to carry white folks' bags, 
in this damn train station for 30 years. My children will not do it. And so the daughter of people from Mississippi renamed herself in Zynga and led one of the most important African-centered organizations in the history of this country. One, I guarantee you, many people who are now writing about black power never knew existed. It still exists. I'm the second vice president of, uh, of ASCAC. Mario Beatty, the Egyptologist, is the first pre is the president of, uh, of ASCAC. So, oh, I'm sorry. I'm the first vice president because Asa Hilliard made transition. And the brother who was the president before Mario, the interim after Nzinga made transition, his name is Leonard Jeffries. Leonard Jeffries, of course, as you mentioned, is the uncle of Hassan Jeffries. In fact, so in fact, when, Hassan, when their youngest was born, he came to the ASCAP meeting, Hassan did, and I saw the baby, he and his wife were there when they came out because he's at Ohio State. We were at Kent State. He came down, we sat and chopped it up. People don't understand. We need to stop being footnotes in white history because if we're footnotes in white history, the only thing you know about what we've been talking about the last 20 minutes is some black kids got spit on going into a high school and you don't even stop to think where did those kids come from they came from the community that killed jim crow and the best of that community is what we need now going forward so oh. yeah. so anyway so, so let's talk about sars for me i know it's, i know we yes. got a minute and then i'll get to some questions and I, let me thank donica for throwing the questions in the in the private chat i'll read yes. some of them yes. uh yeah and i and i thought it was important to talk about sars because we we touched on it last week mm -hmm. And, and as I was watching what was happening, these are all black people. And it would be easy for folk to look at that and say, well, see, black people have, this is not a race thing. This is not about racism. This is not white people. Those are Africans brutalizing other Africans. What does that have to do with what's happening here? George Floyd and police reform. And we touched it last week. So I said, let's come back to it, Dr. Yes, Carter. Yes. I know you can no. not park. Well, let me let me say this very quickly. I mean, and, and again, this is why the work is so important that we do this collectively. Something Ed and, and Hassan said, as you all were talking last week, uh, as you posted it, is very important. Um, we all have a role to play in this because we're all human. We all sentient flesh to borrow from the brother from Arkansas, who then uh, Robin Judy uses. We all have a story. We all have stories, and together those stories are compelling. Um, maybe one day soon we can have a whole conversation about pan-africanism and if folks want to get prepared for that we can uh this is a good book to start this is my friend hakeem adi who's out of london hakeem's book pan-africanism history came out in 2018 he came to the states uh we did a thing for with him at sankofa holly and shriek garima provided the space and had conversations then we went out later you know and had come more conversation about fascinating brother Hakeem Adi has done a number of books, but this is his latest one, Pan Africanism: A History. It's a good place to start, very readable. We need to talk about that. But there's a reason that Black people have made advancements in this country. I mean, in terms of legal advancements. I mean, we didn't get a chance to talk about. We won't talk about the courts this this time, but maybe you know, maybe we'll touch on it a little bit later. But the Warren courts, that's Brown versus Board, that's the Little Rock Nine, uh, the Burger courts. You know, these are the courts that basically go from 1953 to 1986. This is Thurgood Marshall's period on the court. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, just like the country in terms of the government, is heavily influenced by foreign policy. They can't keep showing up as Jim Crow racists in the world that is not only increasingly non-white, but is now being reformed in the wake of World War II. And one of the concessions in America that was designed in part. And Carol Anderson, her book, Eyes Off the Prize, I thought I had it over, I was reading it the other day and I thought I stacked it over here for safety, but it's probably over there. A lot of Gerald Horn's work as well. 
talk about the fact Carol Anderson does a very good on it. She has one called bourgeois, uh, bourgeois, Demi- uh, bourgeois radicals on the NAACP. Cause a lot of people think the NAACP completely sold out Du Bois and them. And I think they did to a large measure, but they're also pushing, they're trying to be uh, disruptive without getting exiled again. You know, I understand, you know, as the, my SNCC folks used to sing the battle of the muffle Tom. You know, don't call me Uncle Tom. I'm just a little afraid. So, I mean, that, we understand. Listen, <laughs> I mean, listen. Poverty ain't cute. You Poverty know, not being cute. able to feed yourself, not no. be able to put a roof over your head is just not cute. But where is the source of your income? Like you say, uh-huh. you can do both and be yeah. conscious. In other words, but you ain't ask nobody. You say, we ain't got to ask nobody for nothing. You got to step out on it. But of course, if you step out on it, you got to have something to step out on. In other words, you can't just be hustling. Uh, let me not say that because there's some people stealing resources now from that. But anyway, but but yes. So 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 Pan Africanism. Why is this important in SARS? Um, my class, uh, the class I teach on uh, Wednesday nights at Howard Law School, Race, Law, and Change. Uh, one of my students is the president, current president of the Howard University African uh, Students Law Association, and we had a long conversation Wednesday night about SARS because this is, of course, right after what happened Tuesday in Lagos, which is where you see. The, the, the Nigerian government let loose these killers to start shooting at these mostly young people in the street who are saying you got to end this anti-robbery squad, this special anti-robbery squad that got started in 1993 in Nigeria. Uh, that's the SARS we're talking about, not severe acute respiratory syndrome. Again, to Europeans, they might not know SARS is a disease. I thought there was a COVID-19. No, we're talking about the legacy of what has happened in Nigeria up to now. Again, tying back to something we talked about last week or the week before with Harry, uh, not Harry, Sir Harry Johnson, with um, Frederick Lugard, the dual mandate British tropical Africa. Remember, the British come in and leave a lot of traditional rulership in place, but then they create these colonies that become states. Nigeria is one of those states, the biggest one in Africa, really. And about, and, and not only that, going to be one of the biggest ones in the world shortly. Yes. You know, 450 million people by 2050 is what they're saying, which will be as many or more people as are going to be in Europe, only in Nigeria. And 14 and under, you're talking about as many as three quarters of, well, 15 and under in the, by 2050, three quarters of the people in Africa are going to be 15 years old and younger. Can you imagine yes. all these young people? So and what's happening in Nigeria is that old system got to go. Nigeria has been, and I pulled a couple of books that are good on Nigeria for people to consider getting, but there's a lot out there. And of course, um, here's a here's a decent book for young people in particular. This is one of those ABC Clio books. I mean, there are a number of books. I mean, you know, dozens, but uh, recent ones I'm talking about. Nigeria's Diverse Peoples, a, re- a recent source book, April Gordon. It's a good kind of summary. I, I hesitated. I didn't pull some of the more complicated stuff because again, this ain't really an academic conversation, but I'm going to show you the table of contents and people can take their time and look about this book starts with before colonialism, the peopling of Nigeria, an overview of some of the major cultures, but there are dozens, in fact, hundreds of different groups in Nigeria, language groups, right? Talks about how current issues come from the historical issues, how contemporary Nigeria has this legacy. There's Biafra, which is really the concept. In fact, my student, the sister who's the president of the African Student Association, she herself is Igbo. Her parents know about the Biafra War, the future of Nigeria. What's going on in Nigeria is, as that country comes into its own independence in 1960, Namdi Zikiwe, graduate of Lincoln University, HBC, Pan-Africanism, Black School, right? Zeke, as they call him, Zeke of Africa, in his autobiography, writes about it, pointing because it's over there on the shelves. What 
What Nigeria tries to do is create something that it wasn't before. One country out of all these different people with these imaginary lines that are now real lines. From 1960 to now, which is roughly speaking, give or take half a decade or a decade or so, our life, lifetime, you and me, we're talking about a group of people. The first fight they had to have was when the Igbo were like, we should leave because y'all mistreated the, the, the Brothers War, as uh, Chinua Achebe calls it. And a great Igbo writer, of course, we know his book, 1957, uh, Things Fall Apart. Things Fall Apart. Exactly. I mean, he's saying, you know, he, the, one of the last books he wrote before he made transition was a book called There Was a Country. It was about the Brothers War. Chimamanda Adichie half of a yellow sun, the arguments they're having in that book. And then in the, uh, our, our brother, uh, Chiwetel Ojiafu, it's a serious thing, this Biafra war in Nigeria to this day, because the people who fought it still living. The Igbo, what you did to them, you know what I'm saying? What's going on? Because, you know, we got the resources, y'all tap, come forward, the uh, the Ogoni people, Ken Sarawiwa, the, you know, the killing goes with shell oil in, in concert with this corrupt Nigerian government, sending people in to fight, to kill them. So what you see in SARS is the latest iteration of brutality against the Nigerian people. The first republic, 1960 to 66, that's, that's Zeke of Africa. Then the second republic, 79 to 83. What happens between 66 and 79? Coup d'etat. The military always coming in. The aborted third republic, 1993. The restoration of democracy, 1998. By the time you get to the late 90s, you got military cats who come in with a coup, and sometimes they run for office. You know, if you any Nigerian, ask any Nigerian about IBB, Babangida, right? I mean, so you get this sense that military steps in when the government of Nigeria has been destabilized, either by popular revolt or the people that become, they become so repressive, the people come in and step in. And people in America are like, why can't they get to act together? Let me tell you a little something. You got about 30 days to find out whether or not that could happen here, because it can. If this thing, if this, if this dude in there right now says, "Oh, I lost," uh-uh, I need three states to contest and get to my flip Supreme Court and seek it. You gonna find out about a military inserting itself in domestic affairs in the United States of America. It's a possibility. I'm just saying. So don't look at Nigeria like it's any different. Because guess what? Their system, in terms of nation state, is your system. United States of America. They don't have the same population, but some of the tensions that have been used there. In comparison to the United States, here they're racial and class. There, they are national and class. By national, I mean language groups, what you might call tribes, but no. Think about conflict that is exacerbated based on who these people are, different people. So what happens is, and what's going on right now with SARS, SARS has been out here wilding. If you watch any videos or talk to any of these young people, you will see what they're doing is they stop you in the street. Well, you get that cell phone. Let me see your phone. Well, that's an iPhone. You must be a thug. You must be a robber. Because that thing is anti-robbery. So they think anybody with a car that's a little too new, anybody with any new to technology dressed differently or dressed nicely or dressed with new clothes, they think, I got to harass you. I got to arrest you. I got Because you must be a drug dealer. You must. And believe me, many times I've been to Africa, it pains me. It's funny that it's not funny because they ain't really funny. We be in South Africa, we be in Egypt, and you know, students, and okay, you y'all Africans, yeah, okay. So, which Africans are the worst Africans? I hate asking that stupid question, but I do it because people talk stupidly. They say the Nigerians. Why you say about the Nigerians? They all drug dealers. They all scammers. They're all that BS. We be talking in the United States about Nigerians. They say it in Africa too. And this is the mentality that has us turning on each other based on these stereotypes. But what's happening with SARS is you got so many young people, over 20, uh, over a quarter almost of the young people in Nigeria don't have jobs. And COVID is hitting him, you, hitting there. You see videos of them coming into fact. There was a uh, there was a, um, 
a, they broke into a, uh, a storage place in Illorin, uh the other day, maybe yesterday. And you see these young people trying to get supplies, trying to get food. People are starving. People don't have stuff. That doesn't mean everybody in Africa is starving, by the way. That ain't what I said. What I said is that the government is not doing a good job of distributing resources. So these young people are taking it in their own hands. And now with the upsurge in violence with SARS, which was always a thug life uh, outfit to begin with, they've only exacerbated it during the plague. And so now they are attacking not only these young people, but just other people in Nigerian society, shooting at them, detaining them. And so finally it boiled over. So what you see in the streets in St. Paul and Minneapolis, Minnesota, the home of Nzinga Radabisha Heru, what you see in Houston, what you see in New York and D.C., Black Lives Matter, you see it in Nigeria. You see it in Kenya. And they stand, you see it in Ghana. They stand in solidarity with the Africans of the United States. The question is, are we going to stand in solidarity with them? Which is why my student on Wednesday, we talked a long time. She was very, and I shared this, concerned with the idea that this Black Lives Matter thing cannot be viewed domestically. This is what happens when you don't have a usable past. When your past is the past of your master, you think this is a domestic issue. When in fact, anti-oppression is a global issue. And when we have recognized that, it's when everybody, wherever we are, have made advancements. Brown versus board comes in part because Nkrumah, Ezekiwe, all the rest of these Africans start asking questions about what about our cousins in the Americas? Because the United States, you come and us telling don't go with the Russians, don't go with the Chinese. But I lived in America. Oh, did you, Kwame? Yeah, I went to Lincoln. I know how you treat black people, JFK. So don't be coming here talking about we're your friends. You ain't my friend. Because if my name was Frank Johnson and not Kwame Nkrumah, my ass might be in jail. So before you come over here telling me Russia's so bad, I just met with the Soviets. And you know what they told me? They said, why are you going with these racists? You say, we got a mountain in Soviet Union named for Paul Robeson. Now, what mountain they got over there named for? Uh, yeah, so mm. 2020, people talk about the Russians did this, the Russians did that. Vladimir Putin is a straight out racist. That's very clear. But be careful before you jump on Russia being so racist and you jumped over the racist here. And that's part of some of the arguments some of these ADOS people like, but ADOS is poison. American descendants of slavery is poison when it is not linked to the Africans everywhere else. They're fighting for a different world, a different country in Nigeria. So yes, they were shot at. The government over there is not really in complete control because you got the top classes in Nigeria who employ private security. You've got some of these police that are beholden to private interests. Shell still over there, Exxon still over there, shout out Condoleezza Rice, all these oil companies, which is why when Joe Biden jumped on the oil companies Thursday night. I was like, dude, does he know what he's saying? And Trump thinking about re re-election. I'm thinking, who's pushing you? Because see, renewable energy is going to destabilize the interests of these companies in Africa. Because they're finding oil, they just found oil under the, uh, off, off the coast of Equatorial Guinea a couple of years ago. And so what do you see? You got to have friendly, biz white business friendly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry non-African business friendly because the Chinese is down there with both hands. Yes, they are. You know what I'm saying? You got yeah. Howard French writes about that beautifully. He's got a book called Africa, China's Second Continent, right? So they, they, they're they gearing up for the second scramble for Africa. And what these young people are saying, we got an opportunity. Guaranteed, I'll end with this, man. Those young people in Nigeria and Kenya and Burkina Faso, where they tried to steal an election, they basically burnt down the men. No, hell no. Those young people are going to remake their societies. 
See, Black Lives Matter isn't a case where they march, they go for reform. If they don't get it, they march again. No, we're just going to tear it down. They're not leaving the streets in Nigeria. And what this sister was telling me and what I agree with her wholeheartedly is we must now educate ourselves here about not only what's going on in Nigeria, what's been going on in Haiti for a year. They got a puppet U.S. installed government leadership there. Those young people are not taking it. Not just young people. But my point is that um, we need to do what we used to do. We, in other words, when we think about the fact that the principle of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, then Horace Mann, who sent those kids to Little Rock High School, with last name was uh, Christoph, and he was from New Orleans, I guarantee you that last name came from somebody who put their name out in memory of the Haitian Revolution. That's a Pan-African last name. That Southern Negro with a PhD who was the principal of the high school that broke Jim Crow's back in Little Rock and enters these silly narratives of American history as a his name came out of Haiti <laughs> at the Haitian Revolution. And I did not know that until I went back in the books. I'm like, damn, damn. And so what we're talking about today in, and what we've been talking about all summer, what is this? Oh, they canceled. I'm sorry. They Good. They canceling appointments. Everybody knows <laughs> don't bother me next week because we need a break. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let me close that. Let me close that date book because I don't need, yeah, good. Cancel your appointments. I need to read some more anyway because uh, Professor Karen Hunter has sent me back to the library and I am so grateful. So we we stop with that. Uh, on that, I wanna, you know, there's a bunch of questions about how people could take your class at Howard and if they're on the West Coast, there's no Howard out there and how I'm I'm, I'm 45, I wanna go back to school, what do I do? Um, that's what we're doing. And this thing, that's what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> right now, enrolling in the school to, yes. first of all, there's no guarantee you're going to get a great car. And if you do get a great car, which would be dope, um, spending the amount of money to be indoctrinated. For me right now, how I feel, if I had to do it over again, I would do like August Wilson. I promise you. Me too. Well, I got to go. I tell my, you know, Tennessee State's 108th anniversary was last week, and my brother and I were, were the only brothers to have served as student body presidents at Tennessee State in their history. And so we gave them hell. That's the story for another day. I, the governor of Tennessee. I, well, I tell you How many that, years my, between you two? Two years? My brother, two. Yeah, two. Yeah, two years. My mother, yeah. Yeah, my mother was, I forget, was she 36 when she had me? If you say, oh, wait, yeah, so and my sister's younger, and she's the youngest. So it's like five, six years between us. But yeah, so we were talking, and I, and I, and, uh, you know, one of the things I said was, you know, I teach at Howard and I'm grateful to be at an HBCU. I tell the students all the time, administrators and them, you know, I went to Tennessee State. So the blue and white that you get in at Howard came out of the classrooms of master teachers who are all almost all ancestors now. One who is not will be 102 years old in December, the great Jamie Coleman Williams. This is the uh, this is the 200th anniversary book of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I mean, I have all the AME Church histories. In fact, there's a brand new one that just came out. The AME Church of History, Dennis Dickerson's book just came out, the AME Church of History. But this is the 200th anniversary. I'm very happy to have this one because it has her picture in it. Let me show you right quick. That's Jamie Coleman Williams right there. She was the first woman to be the editor of the AME Church Review. She's still alive. Her husband just passed last year at 101. She's 102, living in Atlanta. And um, that's my teacher. Uh, she was also Oprah Winfrey's teacher. In fact, Oprah Winfrey graduated the same year I did, 1987. And Dr. Williams had to stop me from roasting her on stage because, you know, Oprah, talk about usable past, sometimes talks with selective memory around her days at Tennessee State and living memory, which is why historians should always talk to people who were there. You know, I, some of my teachers and some of my 
some of these people who were there still at Tennessee State on staff had gone to school with Oprah. And what Oprah was saying, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of friends in college. You know, I kind of stayed to myself. I drove back and forth. I got my job at WL. They was mad as hell because they was like, we helped her win Miss Fire Prevention. I, I helped her do her hair. I'm the one that went over her lines for the monologue because she was a major in the same major I was in, speech, communication, and theater. The student body president gets to speak at graduation. And so Dr. Williams came to me before graduation and said, look, don't blow her up. And I was like, oh, no, she's been talking about Tennessee State like a dog, Dr. Williams. I'm not about to do that, she said, for me. Don't blow her up. 22 years old, I defer to my elder. That's who trained me. So Howard students, that's what y'all getting. There's, there's only one HBCU. We got different locations. That's all. <laughs> and now, right now, we done jail broke the black university. So the thing you think you want to get from those brick and mortar places, right? this is what this is what we do. And the notion of a syllabus, somebody's like, you know, uh, courses, uh, you know, course books and all, all, everything, you know, even, even when you talk about footnotes and things, I'm like, yes. this, how you take us on this journey and it's almost a circle and we go and you come back around. They have taught us to think like this. Yes. And even time isn't like that. No. Even time. So yeah, let's. You Imagine. took us back to when you were a little girl in front of that fish tank, and that set the context for everything. And y'all look, that neither one of us, in fact, we talked before and have to get off the phone. Well, I said, no, no, just wait, <laughs> press record. That's what John Henry Clark always said. A master teacher has to keep their library in their head. And the mark of a good teacher is what can you do with what you know? This is a conversation. This is a conversation between two people been in the classrooms for a very long time, y'all. That's what you would be trying to pay for if you went to school. And I don't know what, anyway. All right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of conversation uh, about foundational America. I don't foundation. I guess that's. Oh, foundational Black Americans. Yeah. What? Uh, so, so can I just. No, please, please, please help me. <laughs> I, I believe that American Blacks descended of enslaved people specifically deserve reparations. I believe that sure. folks in Barbados, in Jamaica, in Haiti, and all all throughout the diaspora, Brazil, definitely Brazil, Portuguese, every place black people work, they deserve reparations in their places. What I cannot I'm listening. I'm just gonna get a book to back yeah, that up. What what I'm struggling with right now is the notion that anybody that is not because I see a lot of comments about oh well that person's not foundational. So therefore, anything that they say is not valid or they're not connected to us. You know, I'm here five, six generations. I love my folk. Wherever you show up in the world, we are experiencing similar things. And to, to cut ourselves off, yes, when reparations happen here, it should be for people just like the Native Americans who have to prove their lineage. But yeah. to destroy the bomb, the, the, the connections that we have with all these other people throughout the diaspora, I think is counterproductive. And it's part, you know, we're, we're participating in dividing and conquering and I'm not here for it. And it's not necessary. No, I don't know what, what's the value in it? Well, um, I, you know, let's ask what, what we, you know, I think a Theophile Bingham, my old teacher used to always ask us this. I hear the question you're asking. Let me ask you a question. Why are you thinking again, like you said, when you try to think of time as linear with a beginning and an end just moves this way? He says, Why are you not? Why can't you do both? There's no good answer on that. And in fact, this is what Hakeem is talking about. When we made the most progress wherever we are, we made it by being both. It's both. 
It's both. Don't you want to have every... In fact, that's why I said, this FBA, I ain't mad at them. Get Ray Winbush's book, Should America Pay? Oh, yes. You know, yes, 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 yes. You know Ray, is the, Ray is the man on this. Morgan State, not only that, here's a book a lot of people don't know about. I really like this book, Nora Whitman, Slavery Reparations Time is Now, Exposing Lies, Claiming Justice for Global Survival, an international legal assessment. You know, law is international. It isn't a full agreement. But when you think, she starts with this latches theory. If you're a lawyer, you know what that is. It goes all the way through. She goes back to before enslavement. She takes it through international law all the way through. This ain't no book Sandy Darity and them really dealing with. And I ain't mad at Sandy. I know what Sandy is trying to do. I'm with Sandy, except now I'm hearing conversation that Darity's making some comments, maybe want to come in and amend H.R. 40. Bruh, listen here. Fall back. Fall back. Because here, here's the problem. Since Cali House got locked up by the federal government in the 19th century, we've been fighting for reparations. Since Garvey went to jail, Jamaican, went to Atlanta, Pennsylvania, we've been fighting for reparations. Since Queen Mother Ollie Moore came out of New Iberia, Pennsylvania, uh, Louisiana, we've been fighting for reparations. Since Amari Obadelli, Gaidi Obadelli, the Obadelli brothers out of uh, 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 um, Detroit, Milton Henry was the guy who worked with uh, Motown who recorded the March on Washington when they put the album out in 1963, then turned around and put out on his own label, Mess to the Grassroots, been fighting for reparations. Brother, 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 as Marvin Gaye would say, don't show up, at, as Jacob Carruthers would say, don't show up at the mouth of victory and try to snatch defeat with an amendment. We get HR 40 passed, then you be on a commission, you do what you're going to do. But before you, uh, your book is important, this book is more important, Redress. For historical injustices in the United States on reparations for slavery, Jim Crow, and their legacies. This book right here is 700 pages. You put these two books together, they're primary documents talking about these theories. Foundational Black Americans, understand this that if you're making a reparations claim in the United States of America, it is only buttressed by saying that you're also going to go to the United Nations. Learn from Paul and S.E. Robeson and W.E.B. and William Dubois, uh, Shirley Graham Dubois. Learn from William Thompson Patterson and Louis, um, William Patterson and Louise Thompson Patterson. Learn from your ancestors. Now, foundational Black Americans should not mean uh, history started when you was born and you saw two YouTube videos and some tweets. Please understand that your ancestors understood that it is both and. When you cut yourself off from your international community, all you have done is capsize the, 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 the potential of your claim wherever you are. It has only been in this country when this country was threatened with the idea that African people were part of a larger global community that we made advancement. That's why that brother was named Dr. Um, Christoph. Even in the name you see Pan-Africanism. And so understand that in those segregated schools, before those kids went to Central High School, they understood this because they were taught some of this history. This is what Carter Woodson and them were doing. So if you're going to go reach back into history for people to support your claim, you're not going to find them. And then when you do find them, you're going to find they failed. So that, that argument flies in the face of our literal lived experiences. Do not drop your domestic claim. We want that domestic claim to be made, particularly as the demographics change. And they are in the point now of openly stealing an election because they realize that this one in 2020 is the last time they're going to be at too many of the babies that have been born in the last 20 years are going to turn 18 between now 
and 2024 for Tom wish he was in the land of cotton to win an election or this uh, Mickey Pompous Pompeo to win an election. They can't win an election in 2024 without, this is the one that's gonna either break their back or ensure that this thing goes on. And finally, for those of you who might be asking about Supreme Court and the courts, you know, I've been reading some interesting conversations. Elisa Garza and them are a member of our board that is talking about expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court and expanding the number of, of judges on the federal courts. There is no number. Six times in the history of the United States of America, the number of Supreme Court justices has been changed. It's not that hard to do. But in order to win this fight, we're going to have to be a little bit more detailed than some tweets, some, pork, some, 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 some blog posts, a couple of handmade videos, and an argument that's pulled from getting a couple of quotes from Garvey, cobbling them together to something Du Bois wrote in the 1950s and saying, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Nah. Okay. All right. Uh, Melissa uh, G says, how do we replace the global system of white supremacy with a global system of justice? That's tough. It may not happen. Because again, we live in a... First of all, the global system of white supremacy was never global. There have always been spaces where it didn't have the reach it thought it had. But we, in America, we get a curriculum and a narrative that leads us to believe that it won. There's a book called History Lessons that uh, asks a, a simple question. How is African, how are key moments in American history taught in other countries? So going back to what uh, uh, Ishmael Reed and Gerald Horn were talking about for like two minutes in the conversation they had the other night. Uh, how is the Mexican War taught in the United States? This is Otis Singletary's book, The Mexican War. This is an oldie but goodie. I like reading the older books because it just makes me laugh because you still see the ideology. The Mexican War is a very important war because the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo leads to the Civil War. Remember, California comes into the Union in 1850 as a free state to balance out the slave state they let in. But the importance is that they're trying to now dispossess Mexico of its top third. How is that taught? How's the Alamo taught in Mexico? Mm. Uh -huh. Santa Ana is not the villain. Santa Ana is the abolitionist hero. So global white supremacy only looks global because we live in America and we closest to these white people here who want to claim like they ran the world. China's laughing. In other words, Here's what they teach their kids now. India's laughing. India's like, here's what they teach their kids now. Don't they understand that there are more honor students in India than there are students in the United States? It, it doesn't matter whether they know or not. They're still using the tech. Now, don't even work. Keep sending a TikTok video. You don't worry about them people. They're yesterday's news. This country already a corpse in many parts of the world. The only people that don't know it yet are the people in the country. So how do we replace it? That's the that's the question. I think we really have to think toward, and this is for everybody, but particularly the children. You know, we've got to think about the world beyond this country's borders. In other words, if we're going to replace the global network, the political systems, the economic systems, we have to be involved in them. We need to care about SARS. Why? Because in a minute, it's going to be more Nigerians than it is people in the United States. And you know how many people who are in this country whose parents or grandparents came from Nigeria, who came from Nigeria themselves, who now go to school, we go to school, all them, people, all them black people in Houston who talk like, who had the same accent me and Karen have more or less, except their parents came from Nigeria, but they were born here. They're Nigerians too. And guess what? We should be Nigerians too. 
and, and Haitians too. And instead of trying to wrap ourselves in the red, white, and blue, we need to be asking whether our cousins can see their way to restoring our links. Because in a minute, being only this is going to be the ultimate L. And it ain't going to matter the color of your skin. So what comes next is, I think, beginning to study and think globally. And by thinking globally, thinking about what's going on in other places, being in solidarity with the working people of the world, the poor of the world, and finally, using our physical location to fight this government and the, and the companies located here in the United States to get off the neck of the people of the places because that buys you some credibility with those people because it's going to be those people who set the next system. It ain't going to be the people in the United States. Trust on that. Yeah, I mean, it was effective in South Africa, what we did here with investment. It worked. Um, and, and even as we start to think about, you know, the, the next thing we want to do, it is wildly important for us to see the connection, to see wow. that, you know, is is so important, especially if we're going to need a place to go, which is why this next question, some, somebody said, Karen, um, have you ever thought about doing a show on black conservative thinkers? Again, um, mm. I, I'm not buying into this, these political ideals. Right. What is that even? What is what is a black conservative thinker? You know, like that's the question. You, you know what I'm saying? Like um, most of us were raised in the church, so we we have these conservative values that have been yes. we've been indoctrinated into. Most black people would probably be Republicans if not for the racism, right? Because we we believe in smaller government. We want you know all of the things that they they tout are things that we you know could that's lean true. into. So I don't get caught up in political ideology, not in this country. That that to me is stupid. Like we we really need to see ourselves not as part of a party, which is why it's annoying when people are like, oh, you're 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 shilling, you're caping for the Democrats. I don't give a damn about a Democrat. I don't give a damn about a Republican. I don't get caught up in these political parties and ideology. I care about black people. Where can, as you said several several times, these are tools. Right. These are tools. These are just tools. That's it. And anybody fighting over this, you, you're you're missing the, the the whole entire point. So yeah, I would, yeah. What's a black conservative thinker? What do we talk? Who are we talking about? And if we're talking about like Candace Owens or or Larry no. Elder or something, those people are operatives. They're doing other things. It's nothing to do with black conservative thinking. It has everything to do with an agenda. Whether we're talking about who's the the heavy set guy that uh, just interviewed Trump yesterday? Um, Whitlock. And you know what's funny? Me and Jason Whitlock on Twitter maybe a year or two ago, we were agreeing on something for that very point you raised. We can't, you know, those labels don't mean anything. That might be interesting to one, Karen. We could have a conversation about Thomas Sowell, for example, who's still alive. Uh, we could talk he's about- an economic guy, right? Thomas yep. Sowell, yeah. At, mm -hmm. at, at the Hoover Institute, Stanford, uh, Walter Williams. There was something called the Claremont Conference. I got the proceedings around here somewhere. This was like the early 80s. Uh, Edmund Meese, all of Reagan's old crew, they had this thing for the Negro conservatives and they all came and they did papers and had conversations. I had to dig it out somewhere. That would be an interesting conversation because that's not who we talking about. Candace Owens, you know, to quote Jay-Z, I'm a hustler, baby. And I want you to know it's not where I've been, it's where I'm about to go. In other words, she gonna be whatever it is to get paid. And as much as you see her skinning and grinning, they even call her name or invite her to the Republican National Commission. Didn't need her. Then Trump got the plague and his whole family got the plague. So they call her up and say, will you bring some sacrificial lambs to the White House? Yasa <laughs> In other words, I don't care. These, and guess her bank account's 
books around here. Why? Because the beautiful thing about conservative books is that they come out, these white billionaires then shuffle money through third parties. So they buy all these copies. That's how they show up on and Look, Karen knows this better than I do, y'all. How they show up on the New York Times bestseller list. They bought, they bought all the books. Anybody reading them damn books, they buy them and give them away. And then the people find them in their garage and they dump them. So I go buy them for a dollar somewhere. So I got to do for the cans on next book and just wait a month. And I'll go get it. <laughs> me. And then I'll have it. Why? Because ain't nothing in it. But I'm saying, what I'm not going to, but what Karen is making a point, Professor Hunter is making a point. What, what you're saying, sis, you know, there's a conversation there to be had about the nature of what we typically label as conservative, but it ain't the conversation that we have been socialized to think it is. Owens and them ain't in the conversation. Herman Cain, in fact, I just found a book on Morehouse alumni, men of Morehouse who were talking, Morehouse men rather, who are talking, you know, the distinction, uh, men of Morehouse students who have come, Morehouse men are the ones who graduate, finish Morehouse. So uh, there's like maybe about 20 of them in there and Cain is in there talking about what Morehouse did for him. And so, you know, but that's a self-reliance, self-sufficiency is a bedrock principle, supposed to be, of the GOP. But that's the GOP that has not been affected by the white nationalist party. It's very independent. Lily White Republicanism in the 1930s with Herbert Hoover and them coming forward. I mean, and we've talked about that before in, in, in our conversations. So there's a conversation to be had, but that conversation must also understand that Black people who have been conservatives have always also integrated something that is kind of foreign to that line of thinking, at least culturally. Self-sufficiency has often always been also been tied to collective self-sufficiency. So it isn't rugged individualism in the European sense. Many of those Europe, in fact, uh, that when I mentioned uh, TRM Howard, I, uh, his autobiography I have read it somewhere, but I won't be able to put my hands on it right now. TRM Howard, where uh, Emmett Till's mother Mamie spent the night in Mount Bayou, that was a Republican leaning, actually bedrock Republican community for years. And the founders, one of the founders uh, actually went to the Republican uh, controlled state convention in Mississippi during Reconstruction and argued against full equality and voting rights for black people in Mississippi at the time. You know, this guy's an Uncle Tom. He got to look at his logic. You don't have to agree with it, but that's very different than Kansas right. Owen. Kansas right. Owen's like, where's my check coming from? If she come with, they come with a big enough check, she'd be campaigning for Joe Biden before the sun go down today. That's a different thing. So, I'm, And that's not even a criticism of her. I'm saying there's a type and it ain't got nothing to do with politics. And I, and I don't want to spend any time, you know, denigrating no. folks doing things for whatever reason. Listen, right. people people have their own moral compass and their own uh, line in the sand that they draw. You know, what our proclivities are, you and I, and how we see the world is, is a little, little bit different, maybe a lot bit different. But, you know, spending time and oxygen, name calling and all that right. is for what? You know, for what? But be mindful. You know, because a lot of folk are following things. And, I, you know, I was really disappointed in when, when Ida Rodriguez was talking about the we and I saw comments like she's Puerto Rican and, you know, what is she even talking about? And this, I'm like, the we, the we, we cannot do this without all of us working together. This is not going to happen with you she over here. Black she said black people, right? Yeah, we. Oh, she's Puerto Rican. I'm like. Last time the boats dropped off folk in Africa. I mean, in uh, from Africa, Puerto Rico, Barbados. Puerto oh, Rico. Yeah. No question. 
Hey, Haiti, Dominican Republic, y'all the same people. Right. In fact, she's a foundational Black American. Come I'm on. Sorry, by American, do you mean you mean United States? Wait, even if you mean United States, right? In Puerto Rico, a colony, I'm sorry, territory. Of, territory. Right. What are yes. you talking about? What are y'all yes. talking about? Yes, yeah, yes. let me stop. Let me stop. Yeah, right. yeah <laughs> no, I mean, and I get, I go there, you know, it is frustrating. It's tiring, really. It's like, damn, are we well, going to get to the promised land? Y'all, wasting time. Here's your, here's your four, Ooh, four colleagues I now. Left page just came out, right? The Dead I Rise. I got my copy. I keep me putting it. One of the things I love, Malcolm said, he said that, you know, he's talking black, black, black. And Wait, hold that up again. Hold that up again, yes, Dr. Carr. The Dead Are Rising, The Life of Malcolm X. It finally came out. The great Les Payne, your, your, your former yes. colleague, now ancestor, with his daughter Tamara, who got it out, right? There he is. So one of the things, that, and I love, what I love about this book is, Payne is not trying to write a glowing, all heroic now narrative of Malcolm X. This brother did what Karen Hunter does. These are reporters. That means I'm talking to everybody. He found all the living relatives. Everybody knew Malcolm at the mosque. I mean, this thing took decades. Then he made transition. His daughter's like, Pop, I'm not going to let you. I'm sure tomorrow Payne felt about less pain the way you felt about your father, Karen. I'm not letting that momentum stop. Let me go. So she got the book finished. So one thing made me think about it when we're talking about, you know, she, but she's Puerto Rican. Malcolm got into a back and forth with somebody who was listening to one speech. Got mad because he kept saying black. So the cat's like, I'm a Negro. Call me Negro, not black. Malcolm said, okay, let me just get this straight. Since Negro mean black in Spanish, it's okay to call you black in Spanish, but not English? <laughs> Shut him up. <laughs> this is the genius of Malcolm X. So, so it's okay, but Ada Rodriguez is Negro, black. In fact, they got Moreno. They got all kind of names. But it all mean black. Get out of here. Come on now. You can make her a foundational uh, black American if you're an FBA or quit because you've been turned around. In fact, to use Malcolm one more time, you've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, run amok, led astray. Thank so, you. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's a comment about Claude Anderson, Dr. Claude Anderson, yes. Powernomics. You know, again, they're excellent, excellent blueprint. Yes, there are many, many. And, and again, you know, all things are not for all people. You gotta find your 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 beat. You know what I'm saying? For me, you know, it was reading Susie Orman and David Bach, and then reading Napoleon Hill to get my money game together, and then coming yes. around to this Kimbrough. You know, you as you were talking today, I was like, that's the breadcrumb rabbit hole. You go from one thing, and then somebody's name will pop out, and then that name will lead you on a. Tr this is an individual journey. This learning. Yeah. Yes. But it requires all of us to follow our path so that we can bring yes. the collective knowledge into the fold, right? Because my rabbit hole is not going to be your rabbit hole. No. But our individual rabbit holes coming together make Saturday class. Right. And then you fact, I'm glad you said, one of the things I really uh, like about Claude Anderson is that he talks with young people, he's trying to break down, and he has the experience. His experience is his experience. So when Claude Anderson says, for example, that under the Carter, in the Carter administration, he was he was the one who had the author the authority to dispose of surplus uh, material for the federal government. That's important. Now I was watching another day with our brother Lenard, and and on the Breakfast Club, I was watching one of the videos, and he said, you know, there were only two black federal judges appointed when I was working with the Carter administration. He said, so you know what I did? I started appointing federal judges. And I'm like, see, I know what you mean. 
I know you mean administrative judges, judges for a certain term, judges who have to, you know, go through the congressional process and then, but judges who then, uh, administrative law is a whole nother category. Even the legal scholars argue, why does it have so much power? It's not really, you know, part of the framework. It's not an, these Article Three courts and this kind of thing. But what he's saying is that he appointed federal judges. What they're hearing, I guarantee you, unless he would explain it to them, is that one person can appoint judges to the circuit court, court of appeal, Supreme Court. That is not true. So I think Dr. Anderson is doing important work, and in, but in part of in, in part of that work he's doing, there is, there can be a tendency to not slow down to unpack it by the listeners. Carl Anderson is doing some very important work, and and, and, and the only thing I'll say about his work because I've learned a lot listening to him reading his work is that his work is very much I think it's most valuable as. Uh, uh, as exercises in pragmatic behavior. In terms of the philosophy of history, I, I find it difficult because, again, it reinforces this kind of inward turn that, as far as I'm concerned, is just a, it's not the best, most effective use of historical memory. And, it, and, and also, it doesn't push people to do what good teachers should do, which is inspire students to teach themselves. So don't you shouldn't be reading a book as a as a Bible. <laughs> read Please, a book as a point of departure. Not even the Bible. <laughs> don't even read the Bible as a Bible. Okay. Don't read the Bible as a Bible. Right. Well, this is what about if, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's not, right. Oh, all right. So somebody said, where do, where do I? This is the last question, and we're gonna wrap up. Where do we start in achieving important black knowledge? And as I'm reading that question, I'm also thinking, like, how did we get here? You know, you student, uh, you know, musician, uh, arts theater, you love comic books, you love, you know, like it's, it. it's a, it's a fullness, you know, where do you, where do you start? You start with your passion. You know, I, I remember the book that most inspired me as a kid was Tale of Two Cities. And I'm not from, Ooh. you know, I'm not from that culture, Don't but it, it, it awakened things in me. I didn't read any really good black books until I became an adult on my own, of course, an English major in college, but that I rarely went to school, uh, rarely showed up to class, but you know, I think about <laughs> I think about, you know, the books that inspired me as a kid, and none of them were black facing, but they did open my mind to wanting to read more. I was a big Stephen King fan, you know, as the stand is about to come on TV and I'm like, that stand messed me up at 16. Wow. You know, yeah. 16. But, so you're a reader. That was yeah. always in fact, let me ask you, what and I know we, we about to wrap up, but what was it about a tale of two cities? The the whole like because I didn't come from an impoverished space. So to watch the come up and the overthrow yeah. and the, you know, and the and to be rooting for, yeah, that those people to get, you know, get what was theirs and the writing, the writing was just amazing. See, and you, you know, know what, Karen, it, and this would open up a whole, maybe we should, the craft, wordsmithing, English was ostensibly the worst of the European languages. And yet, even in English, you can find a way as Dickens did. I mean, some people, the only thing they know from that is it was the best of times. The, time the, worst time. the only thing they know, right? <laughs> but but, but that language, you, the fact that it is there speaks to that power, right? And Dickens doesn't have this many decade career. I mean, you know, we, I mean, Dickens in a very short moment coming out of kind of obscurity as a writer, if memory serves me correctly, when he hits, you know, great expectations, Pip 
lady Harris, I mean, this idea of the come up. And that's a period where you see extreme wealth and in, in, in income in, in inequality in England. And of course, the gesture is back toward the come up in places like Les Miserables, like Victor Hugo, mm -hmm. or in the work, of course, of Dumas. So there goes the black. You know, the count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> I mean, no one know. ever told me was black until until I was thirty. <laughs> An adult, full grown. Yeah. See, I mean, to see y'all, this is the thing. When you're a reader, you teach yourself. Karen, when you, I mean, in the space of about thirty seconds, went through all those books to help you understand the power of wealth. And those of you who, if you haven't heard of Napoleon Hill or Dennis Kimbrough, she went quick, boom, boom, boom. Now you got to go back and say, what about curriculum? She didn't give you the curriculum. Write those names down. Go find Think and Grow Rich. Go find I mean, these are these are classics. You understand? So there's really very little new under the sun. Ecclesiastes had it right. It's not new under the sun. Yeah. On that note, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank uh, you. I want to thank all of the 2,000, 3,000 people that joined us today okay. in class. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have a class. I never taught a class this big in my life. Uh, so I want to thank you, Dr. Carr. <laughs> you, you got a lot of people in your class. You got hundreds. Yeah, but this, this is different. See, the yeah. brick and mortar is gone. The pandemic has revealed the facts. And at the end of the day, it's the substance. It ain't where it ain't where you're sitting. It's where you at. And what was it, Rakim? <laughs> it's ain't where you from. It's where you at. <laughs> All right. So um, hit the like button. Um, yes. Subscribe to the channel. Follow Dr. Carr on Twitter because he is active. Africana Carr. Africana Carr. I'll put it all in the description after it's over. I'll spend some time putting some books in there as well. I always do seven books because that's the number of completion. If I don't put a book on there that you don't have that that's, that you want it, then you have to pause and go through it. That's what I'm committed to. Um, and I just want to thank you for your time, Dr. Carr. Thank you, Professor Honey. You know, I love you.